If you're not a Patriots or a Rams fan, you probably hated the Super Bowl. Like, it pre- this is probably not a good game to watch from an entertainment aspect. Now, I was entertained. I was on the edge of my seat. I was sick to my stomach, beginning with Tom Brady's interception on his first pass of the game, on the, in the first possession of the game. You know, a couple other different moments where you're sick to your stomach. Um, you know, Hightower drops that interception. Uh, and then there's a couple plays in the end zone that the Rams couldn't make. You know, there's so you know, Guskowski missed a field goal. There were so many things that happened in this game that you're just not feeling good about it, right? But you had a 3-0 lead at the half, and you end up t- getting the touchdown in the fourth quarter with the Sony Michelle run, but the drive was really set up with Brady, right? That drive was really set up with Brady. You get the touchdown. You get the field goal uh, to, to give you a 13-3 lead, and that's... But it was like, that's what we discovered, what it was like to be able to breathe in the final minute of a Super Bowl, knowing that not only did you have a lead, but the other team gets the ball, and even if they score, you still will have a lead. Like, I don't know what that felt like until last night in the final minute of Super Bowl 53, but it felt, it felt great. It's just, it did feel a little weird after the game because you're like, you know, and you're looking around at the people you're watching it with, you're like, wow, in Super Bowl's past, like, we were kind of, not that we weren't excited, but there's, there's a different type of excitement when you, when you win the way the Patriots have won in the past. I mean, think about it. Not only have the Patriots won Super Bowls, but they have won in dramatic fashion, right? Uh, going back to Vinatieri's kicks to win Super Bowls. You know, you look at the first Eagles Super Bowl, the the one the Patriots won, Donovan McNabb, there was drama at the end of that game, but it, you know, it, it wasn't like the Patriots scored last to win. Like, that's just McNabb couldn't score, right? He, he was sick. He wasn't rushing up to the line of scrimmage. Um, you know, the ones the Patriots lost, obviously, I, I, I think we know how those went. They Those were still dramatic finishes, right? Um, you had the the win against Seattle, the final play, Malcolm Butler. That's as crazy as you're going to get, really, in any sport at the end of a game, championship game. Then you had the, the comeback against Atlanta. That was insane. And, um, you know, now you, you have a, a two-score lead in the final minute, and, and, and we're so used to being all jacked up about crazy finishes where it, it definitely was a different feel when the Patriots won this game the way they did. I was, you know, thrilled to see them win it, obviously. I, I, I don't think that needs to be said. But I think we all know, and, and we probably all felt the same way, which was this is a different type of, 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 of thrill that we're, that we're feeling and experiencing right now. Um, but, you know, we felt it all, and you got to just embrace it. Here in New England, you got to just embrace it because you never know. It could be the last one. It could be the last one. But um, I'll get to the future. To look back at this game, when, when, I, when I look at my biggest takeaways from Super Bowl 53, again, Patriots win 13-3. Julian Edelman, the MVP, the seventh wide receiver to win the Super Bowl MVP. He had 10 catches for 141 yards. He did not have a touchdown. Edelman was... Big, I thought, in the in the first half. Um, 
you know, Edelman is, this is, this was no surprise. I mean, we all know that Julian Edelman is Tom Brady's binky, so to speak. Uh, he's a guy that Tom Brady relies on. This is a guy that missed the first four games of the regular season with a suspension to PEDs because of PEDs. And, um, you know, that was a wacky story going back to the beginning of the year. But Edelman, you know, maybe it benefited him, right? Maybe it benefited the team. Knowing he's a little bit more fresh for this game. But Edelman was huge. Again, 10 catches, 141 yards. He was the MVP. Me personally, I would not have given Edelman the MVP. I would not have given Edelman the MVP. And I'm not trying to knock him by saying that. Like, I'm really not. Like, I love Edelman. And, and people who are having the debate today that oh, Edelman should be, a, now he's in the Hall of Fame. I mean, even if Edelman didn't play in this game last night, I'm still putting Edelman in the Hall of Fame. And I'm not saying that just because I'm a Patriots fan. I'm saying that because I have a brain and I know Edelman's story. I don't think you need to be a Patriots fan to, you know, to be able to understand just how special Julian Edelman is. Just in general, he was a quarterback in college, not at a big school either. You know, what was he, a seventh-round pick? Turned into a slot-wide receiver to have this type of career? Did anybody see this coming? And here's something that I always point out to people about Edelman, which to me is like, um, this clinches a Hall of Fame berth for him. This clinches it for him. As great as a receiver as Edelman has been, the road he has taken to get to this point also includes some defensive play. It includes defensive play. 2012, right? The, the second giant Super Bowl. To get there, Julian Edelman, correct me if I'm wrong, was playing defense in the AFC Championship. Like, he was, a de- he was being used as a defensive back at times. And, you know, it's just incredible that he was a quarterback in college at a small school. Gets drafted, almost doesn't get drafted. Patriots turn him into a wide receiver. And somewhere in between, and even maybe a little before he was an elite wide receiver and a Super Bowl MVP, they threw him out there for some defense. And I think he was pretty good when he played defense. So people forget that part of Edelman's game. He's a Hall of Famer. Edelman did not need to win a Super Bowl last night to be a Hall of Famer. Edelman did not need to even play in this game to be a Hall of Famer in my book. People will have that debate now, but I'm just trying to show you and and prove to you that I'm not knocking Edelman when I say that I don't think he was the MVP of the Super Bowl. I don't. I don't think he was the MVP of the Super Bowl. I mean, if you want to look at that, that touchdown drive, you know, the only touchdown of the game in the fourth quarter as Brady drove him down, when they get the ball back with what, like nine minutes and 45 seconds left and Brady drives him down, um... You want to look at that drive. Edelman got one catch. And, you know, I know he had 141 yards. I know he had 10 catches. I know that's a game high. But it's like, to me, when you only allow three points in a Super Bowl, somebody on your defense better be getting the MVP. That's the way I look at it. If you allow only three points, especially... To an offense like the Rams. Now, look, if you're a Rams fan, you're probably thinking, wow, if Cooper Cup was healthy, that might have opened some things up for your passing attack. And also, what's going on with Gurley's usage? He says he's fine. He says he's healthy. We'll see. 
I, I still don't know about that. Um, you might question those things. You know, what if? What if Gurley got more touches? What if Cooper Cup was healthy? What would this look like? That's still that's still a Rams offense that's aggressive. That's a Rams offense that has weapons. Um, that's a Rams offense that I never thought would be held to three points in the inside in a dome. If you told me this game was going to be like outside, kind of like the game they had in Chicago, they were obviously rattled by the cold in that game. The Rams were uh, at the end of the regular season. You know, I would have told you, all right, maybe. Maybe you could limit their offensive production. But I still I still wouldn't even have told you they'd hold them to three points. Three, when you hold a team to three points in a Super Bowl, you better be and you and your offense only scores 13 and only one touchdown. You better be giving the MVP to a defensive player. And I mean Edelman didn't even score the touchdown. If Edelman scored the touchdown, I'd probably say, all right, 141 yards, had the go-ahead score, give it to him. You score one touchdown, it's your running back. I mean, Sony Michelle, what do you have, 94 yards rushing? He had a couple. I mean, Michelle Ope began the game. When the Patriots got the ball to begin the game, and they gave it to Michelle for a couple big runs before the Brady interception, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be this is gonna be a blowout. I mean, the first couple touches that Sony Michelle had, you're like, blowout. We're going to score 40 points. We're running, it, we're running it early like this. Brady's play action is going to be deadly. Deadly by the middle of the second quarter. Deadly. Rams got no shot. And then Brady throws the interception, and I'm puking into a garbage barrel. <laughs> wow, things can change quickly in the Super Bowl. Um, but I just, the MVP, yeah, Edelman had a nice game. Um, when you allow only three points in the Super Bowl, someone on your defense has to get it. I would have given it to Stephon Gilmore. He had the interception late in that game when the Rams were driving. I thought it was such a huge interception. I know it was the result of Patriots pressure. They blitzed a couple defensive backs. You're not going to see Deron Hammond's name. He might not even be on the on the box score sheet. Like, is his name even there? He's right. He didn't have a tackle. He didn't have a tackle. He didn't do. He didn't do anything. I don't even know how many. I don't even know how much he was out there on the field. But Deron Hammond was on the field for that blitz. In the possession that the Rams had it after the Patriots scored the touchdown, the Rams were driving. They said, "Let's go. Let's send them." They send them. Hammond comes in, almost gets there. Goff sees him coming right at him. Fires it deep down the right sideline. Stephon Gilmore jumps up and gets it on a ball intended for Brandon Cooks. And uh, I, Gilmore, I talked about Gilmore coming into this game. I talked about the matching up these two defenses and the household names that the Rams have on defense, right? They they got big names: Donald, Sue, Fowler, Peters, Talib. They had they had the household names. Patriots, you know, they didn't really have the household names. Stephon Gilmore, you would think, would be a household name, but he's still not because he still doesn't get the credit that he deserves nationally for being such a lockdown, shutdown cornerback. He might be the best cornerback in football. Remember when the Patriots signed Stephon Gilmore the first day of free agency? Like, they signed him to a big contract right out of the gate. And everyone's like, whoa, what is going on here? Why would you do that? And and I think the reason there's a couple reasons for that. You know, the whole 
Malcolm Butler's presence, you know, that was, and his contract status and where he was going and, you know, would he be moved? That was, that was a factor. But I do think the biggest factor was that Stefan Gilmore was not a household name. He was in Buffalo. You know, I, I don't know that the average NFL fan even knew who Stefan Gilmore was. Certainly, if you're playing video games and you play Madden 19 a lot, I don't think you're going out and taking Stefan Gilmore and making sure you trade for him for your team. I just don't think that's... that. He's not a household name. He wasn't then. He still isn't, but he probably should be. He probably should be. Stefan Gilmore probably should be because he's been that good. He's had such a great season. And when you talk about the game he had in Super Bowl 53, the interception in that moment, in that spot, you have a 10-3 lead. You just scored the first touchdown of the game. Now the Rams are driving. They get down into Patriots territory. Yeah, you put the blitz on, but somebody's going to step up and make that play. You know, there were a couple defensive players that couldn't make interceptions in this game when they had a chance to because they couldn't catch the fucking football. Stephon Gilmore caught the football. There were also a couple plays that Gilmore broke up in this game. Big, you know, big passes that he broke up. I, I thought Gilmore should... It, I thought you should have given it to a defensive player, and if you're going to give it to a defensive player, you, I think you give it to Gilmore. Had the interception in the big spot and played a nice game and covered, you know, Brandon Cooks all night. And um, that's not an easy. That's not an easy task. I I honestly thought they were gonna give it to a defensive player. They gave it to Edelman. Edelman had a nice game. Edelman's a Hall of Famer. I'm not trying to knock him. I'm just trying to tell you what I would have done, where I thought it was gonna go when you allow only three points in the Super Bowl. Man, that is saying something. That's incredible. Three points allowed to that Rams team. You want to punish Robert Kraft with a with a hefty fine? Go ahead. And I actually think Robert Kraft should be fined for this. And, but here's what he should be fined for. Stupidity. He should be fined for stupidity because this is just... Look, you're worth $6 billion. Is that what he's worth? How much is Robert Kraft worth? $6 billion? $12 billion? I don't know. Maybe he's double that. Let's say anywhere between 6 to $10 billion Robert Kraft is worth. Yeah... If I let's say, and I'm trying to put myself in issue, if I was worth 500 million, not even a billion, 500 million, you couldn't pay me enough to go to a strip mall massage parlor in Jupiter, Florida, to get a hand job. Like because that, if you want to break down the details of this, this is what happened. Robert Kraft got a massage, paid for a massage. What do he pay? Seventy bucks. <laughs> this story is so stupid. Like, Robert Kraft should be fined for stupidity. He went to a strip mall. I didn't even think the pictures of this were real when I first saw it. Like, I was expecting the picture of this place to be like, I'm like, oh, Robert Kraft wouldn't, he wouldn't go to a place that any old Joe Schmo would be going to to get a, to get a massage and then a happy ending, would he? <laughs> Apparently he does. And you could say, well, he's just the common man. Robert Kraft is not the common man. He's worth $6 billion. He should be fined. You want to suspend him for stupidity too? Go ahead. This was stupid. You worth $6 billion. What are you going to a strip mall massage pile to get a happy ending for? Like, you think nobody, nobody might see you going in there? Nobody might see you coming out? What are you going to say? Oh, no, I was at the video game store. You didn't see me coming out of there. I was down at the video game store. <laughs> no, I was, I was doing laundry. 
I was doing laundry two stores down. I grabbed a slice of pizza. I wasn't in the that dirty massage parlor. Uh, come on. What are you even doing going near that place? Like, that's just stupid. That is just pure stupidity. You have all the money in the world, and that's what you're doing? That's where you're going to get a massage and then anything else that came along with it? <laughs> like, 70 bucks? Come on! Like, you got, a, you got a beautiful house down there, probably? It's just, wow. I'm, it's, it's stupid. That's my takeaway. Right? He should be punished for stupidity. He should be. I mean, you really want to you really want to go dig into the whole process of somebody who owns one of these places, the 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 women that they have coming in there, working in there, um what they're being told to do like uh, I think if you really dig dig deep into some of these places like there's some there's some shit that's pretty wrong going on in there like right i mean <laughs> you want to break it down like that like you know these there's some pretty serious charges that are going to be thrown the, the way of people who own places like this and they get caught doing it but you know at the same time like i look at i'd like to know a lot of the people who are investigating this how many of, of those people have actually gone to one of these places at some point in their life as well you get, you get what i'm saying like um I don't want to make it sound like what Robert Kraft did was so uncommon or that these 10 spas in Florida, the only 10 massage parlors that are doing this in, in the U.S., they're not. There's a, lot, there's a lot of places like this. And, you know, I, it, just in general, you know, if Robert Kraft was just some Joe Schmo who went to a massage parlor in a, in a strip mall and got a... Got a happy ending after a massage. Like, I don't, this wouldn't even, would this even be newsworthy? I, I don't know. But I think it's newsworthy around here and now and national news because Robert Kraft isn't some Joe Schmo. He's a $6 billion man who, I, I, I just don't understand how you could just be living your life going, yeah, you know what? I, maybe this would be a good idea if I get seen going in this place. Like, come on. Come on, fi- I, I'm almost begging for the NFL to find him for stupidity, stupidity. Now they can't do anything with the team and the players or draft picks. Like I'm not asking for that, and I'm not looking for an overreaction here. Like I'm not looking for him. He has to. You got to make him give up the team. Like I'm not doing that either. I don't even want to talk about this. People say, well, it's the biggest story in, in sports. It's like, well, how deep do you want to go into it? Like I think it'll be something else if there's like a video that comes out and and, and there's a. There's a little more happening than what me than what we're all assuming happened. You know, then maybe we, you know, when the the Robert Kraft sex tape comes out, you know, then I think we got we got something else here. But how much more time do you want to focus on what happened, the details of what happened, and what the punishment should be? Robert Kraft, my ultimate takeaway is that he should be punished for stupidity, for even stepping foot in this place, for even thinking that it would be a good idea, whether you knew there was an investigation on this place going on or not. He went in here not once, he went in here twice. So what are we talking about? Robert Kraft paid $140 for two visits total. Is that the math? I don't know. Um, I mean, it's just, I, 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 <laughs> I almost can't even believe it. Now, he's denying it. Maybe, maybe there's just, I don't know. Maybe there is no video. Maybe they don't believe this video. 
But he should be fined for stupidity. Dumb. What are you doing? Maybe he just doesn't care anymore. What's he, 77 years old? Robert Kraft is just like, I don't got much time left. I got Super Bowl rings every year. Um, you know, what else, <laughs> what else do we got? What else do I got? Yeah, I'll run into this place real quick. How long is it going to take? Half hour, 45 minutes? All right. Maybe he just doesn't care. Well, there's a difference between not caring and being stupid. Robert Kraft, maybe he didn't care, but he was also stupid. You gotta, if you're not going to care, you got to be a little smart about not caring. He was not smart about this. Fine him, punish him for stupidity. You don't even have to say it was for stupidity, but behind the scenes say, this is, Robert, this was dumb. We need to punish you. We need to fine you for being dumb. Okay? You, you're a powerful figure in the National Football League. This was a stupid mistake. We got to punish you for it. He should be punished for stupidity. And that's where, that's where I stand on it. Um, you know, people who were trying to say that he should lose the team or, you know, don't, I would say don't overreact. People are going to overreact. We live in a world of overreactions. There's, you know, the sensitivity that is out there, especially on social media. It's a world of overreactions. I'm not going to overreact, but you want to find the guy for stupidity? Go ahead. Do it. You know, do it. A $6 billion man should not be even pulling into that parking lot. He should not, nobody should even be driving him into that parking lot. It's like, no, no, no. Some, like, I'm surprised, is, did he go in by himself? Was he just, was anybody like, hey, uh, Robert, maybe, you know, stay home. You know, there's places you could call if you really, <laughs> I, I, don't know what, I don't know what you're looking for right now, but I mean, you got $6 billion. You don't have any friends. I'm sure you got a beautiful pool. Like you could have a throw a party, a little private party. I don't know. What are you doing stepping foot in this place for? It's mind boggling to me that he would think that's a good idea. But it's not a good idea. And he should be fine for stupidity. Maybe the Celtics should stop making headlines in their post-game interviews. Right? Maybe it's time for the Celtics to stop making headlines in their post-game interviews. Because Kyrie Irving made headlines last night. But the headline that everyone's talking about today that he made is coming from his post-game interview, not his on-the-court stuff, okay? Not his team-high 27 points and 18 assists. And the fact that you beat the one seed in the Eastern Conference at the TD Garden, that you snap a three-game losing skid. Everybody's talking about not what Kyrie did on the court. Everyone's talking about what Kyrie said after what he did on the court. And the Celtics need to get back to the headlines the day after a game being about what they did on the court rather than what they said after what they did on the court. So if you missed what Kyrie Irving had to say, and if you're paying any attention to the NBA or the Celtics, I don't think you missed it. I don't think you missed it. Kyrie Irving, after a big win, a great win over Toronto, Kyrie Irving decided to tell the media that he called LeBron James this week and apologized to LeBron James. What did he apologize for? He apologized for basically being a pain-in-the-ass kid on a team that was trying to win a championship. 
He apologized. He called LeBron James. He told the media this last night. I got the audio for you. I'll play it in a second. He told LeBron James. He called LeBron on the phone and, and apologized to LeBron for being a selfish, pain-in-the-ass young kid who didn't necessarily have his mind in the right place, which should have been, all right, let's win a championship, rather than it's all about me, 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 my contract, uh, my numbers, my all-star status. Kyrie told the media after this win over Toronto last night that he called LeBron James and apologized to him. And obvious, I'm watching this going, well, obviously, this is now going to be the headline. Like, the, the minute the words LeBron James come out of Kyrie Irving's mouth, regardless of what he says, that's the headline. It's no longer about the Toronto Raptors and the, and, and the win, the great win that you had. It's now about what you said after the game. And my message today is simple. The Celtics need to stop making headlines with their post-game interviews and get back to making headlines with their on-the-court stuff and their wins and his 27 points, 18 assists. But Kyrie couldn't help himself. He couldn't help himself. So, after the game, he had his standard media post-game interview. The cameras are in front of his face. The microphones are in front of his face. And, uh, well, I'll play it for you. Here's what he had to say. You know, I'll tell you one thing. And, obviously, this is something that um, it was a big deal for me because I had to uh, call Brian, you know, and tell him, like, you know, I apologize for (laughs) being that young player that wanted to everything at his, you know, at his fingertips. And I wanted everything to uh, be at – you know, my threshold, I wanted to be the guy that led us to championship. I wanted to be the leader. I wanted to be all that. And, you know, the responsibility of being the best player in the world and leading a team is something that's not meant for many people. And Brown was one of those guys that came to Cleveland and tried to really show us, show us what it's like to win a championship. And it was hard for him. And uh, sometimes getting the most out of the group, it's not the easy, easiest thing in the world. And um, like I said, only few are, are meant for it or chosen for it. And you know, I feel like the best person to call was him because, you know, he's been in this situation. You know, he's he's been there with me where I've been the young guy of, you know, being a 22-year-old kid and, you know, wanting everything. He wanted everything right now, you know, coming off an all-star year starting and then, you know, this, this heck of a presence comes back and now i got to adjust my game to this guy. And, um, you know, you take it personal, but at the end of the day, he just wants what's best and he has a legacy he wants to leave and he has a window he wants to capture. So I think... What that brought me back to was like, all right, how do I get the best out of this group of the success they had last year? And then helping them realize what it takes to win a championship. All right, that's Kyrie. That's what he had to say at first. Then he continued, and uh, here's another part of what Kyrie Irving had to say after this game on Wednesday night. It takes a real man to go back and look, you know, call somebody and be like, hey, man, like I was young. You know, I made some mistakes. I wasn't seeing the big picture like you were. I didn't have the end of the season in mind. I just wanted to get my stats and, you know, make all-star games. Like, and, you know, in his career, it means, like, this much at that point. So it's like, <laughs> you know, so, so it's just good, you know, and it gave me a peace of mind, too, to go about what I got to go do. All right, so, um, you know, at some point, you, you listen to that going, enough, enough, enough. I no longer want to hear about your phone conversation with LeBron James. Um... You know, there's part of me that thinks, all right, that's pretty cool. It's, you know, good on Kyrie. You know, in a vacuum, good on Kyrie to to do that. 
to call LeBron James and and to apologize for basically being a pain in the ass and being a selfish kid on a team that was trying to win a championship with a bunch of veterans. Good for Kyrie. Good on Kyrie to do that. You know, um, the problem with the problem with it is maybe the timing. You know, like if Kyrie told us that after the season, like did a one-on-one sit down with somebody and and wanted to talk about what his career has been like so far, then that's fine. The timing of this is is strange because again, I, I the Celtics need to get back to stop making headlines with their post-game interviews, and this is obviously gonna this is gonna create a headline that takes away from what they did on the court. The minute LeBron's name comes out of Kyrie's mouth, and he knows that, Kyrie's not stupid. But here's here's another problem. Kyrie Irving, he is starting to sound like LeBron James, isn't he? Like, hey, look at me. Look what I did. Hey, look look what I, I called LeBron. I apologize. Look at me. Kyrie's starting to sound like LeBron. And, and... We just want him to play like LeBron. We don't want him to sound like LeBron. We just want him to play like LeBron. Everybody in Boston wants Kyrie Irving to be one of the best players in the league and lead the Celtics to a championship. I don't think anybody's begging for the post-game interview where he's talking about LeBron or even sounds like LeBron James by going out of his way to let everybody know something good that he did off the court. We don't. He Kyrie is starting to sound like LeBron James. And it's questions being asked to Kyrie as he's sitting on the sideline in his in his warm-up gear. Uh, I don't know if this is before practice or after practice. And, um, you know, he's, he's answering questions. And, and, and a couple things he's doing here. One, he's looking for sympathy. And two, he's looking for sympathy because he's setting up his excuse at the end of the year as to why he's going to leave town. Oh, the media was so bad to me. Kyrie Irving. Ladies and gentlemen, here's his latest audio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, but, uh, you know, it's all part of it. So it's all part of it. What helps you kind of recenter yourself, Kyrie, and just kind of get out of the, the, the irritable state that, you know, a lot of us get into when yeah. things aren't going the way we obviously want them to? Uh, by just realizing that, you know, it's not as bad as you, you make it seem. You know, it's, you know, everyone's not at odds with you all the time. Um, you know, you just get back to the root of what, you know, kind of makes you tick and why you love the game of basketball. You know, I said it before, but I didn't really come into this game to, to be cameras in my face, you know, be famous, be a celebrity, wherever embodies that. So it's, it's a little hard for me. You know, um, I wanted those things when I was younger, but now at this point in my career, I just want to play basketball at a very, very high level. And, you know, the distractions that come from the team sometimes can get overwhelming. And I'm human, so um, and I just try not to let it seep into you know, my teammates, and that's the most important thing, which is, you know, set an example for these young guys. Um, and I don't even want to call them young guys, but my teammates, they, they, they really have a, a great, great um, passion for the game of basketball, and they've shown that they can play at a high level, and now it's just getting there on a consistent level. So. All right, so Kyrie, <laughs> it is kind of unbelievable because this is a guy that demanded a trade out of Cleveland. You know, and I know Cleveland, when LeBron was there, was still one of the top teams in the league. So I guess you can't say that um, there weren't cameras around him with the Cavaliers. But, you know, if Kyrie, if that was like such a major factor, not wanting cameras in your face, you know, not wanting the spotlight on you, then there are some things that, there are some things that he could do. And one of those things would be don't demand a trade out of Cleveland, right? 
especially if you know LeBron's going to be leaving. I mean, and everybody knew LeBron was leaving. Everybody knew LeBron was going to the Lakers. Everybody knew LeBron was going to LA. Everybody knew LeBron was getting out of Cleveland after he won that championship with them, and that was all he needed to do when he went back. Kyrie Irving, it's just it's it's comical to me that he's going to complain to the media here in Boston by saying, "Well, you know, it's it's a lot, you know. I didn't come in to come into this league to to have cameras in my face. I mean, you're in the NBA. Like, what are you talking about? What do you think this is? What what did you think you were getting yourself into? This isn't, you know, some CYO league up the local gym." You know, this isn't a a three-on-three pickup game down the park. This is the NBA. There's cameras in your face. Of course, any team you're on. But if you really care so much about that, when you continue to bitch about that, you should have stayed in Cleveland. And and don't take all this other stuff now and it's like, oh, he might go to New York. I mean, this is also a guy that was just in a fucking movie. By the way, his own movie. What is he talking about? It's infuriating, but here's, again, here's what he's doing. He's setting us up. He's like, oh, the media, it sucks. It's so bad, especially here in Boston. He's, now, it's going to make no sense when he has a press conference at Madison Square Garden signing with the fucking Knicks. It's like, you think the media is bad here. How do you think the media is in New York? Especially for a team that hasn't won in, in years. Come on now. So there's a big-time contradiction with a lot of stuff that Kyrie says, which leads me to believe that I think he's just, you know, he wants the sympathy because he's setting us up. Everybody here with this, who roots for the Celtics, who covers the Celtics, he's setting Celtics fans up. He doesn't want to be bad-mouthed. He doesn't want all that. You know, he wants to be praised. You know, he doesn't want the cameras in his face. So how can he leave the Celtics and and get some sympathy out of it? But he's create he's almost creating this whole media narrative himself because the media is not going to stop with this stuff as long as he is saying shit like this, and he knows it, and he knows it. Here's more Kyrie. Were you well, I mean, Kyrie? Were, were you kind of having one of those those moments the other night? Because it just you weren't your usual self in, in post game. No, I mean. I get tired of all this stuff, just like everybody else. So I mean, that's—that's. That's, I said it's a constant battle, you know. Um, it's a con- hold on. I gotta stop there. It's a constant battle. What are you talking about? Kyrie Irving made twenty million dollars this year. Twenty million dollars. Okay. I had to go to fucking Coinstar the other day just to get an iced coffee at Dunkin' Donuts. He makes twenty million dollars. It's a constant battle. Fuck you. You know, that's what's so tough about what's going on right now. I want to cheer for Kyrie Irving. I want to cheer for the Celtics. I know the situation that they're in. They need Kyrie to win. I don't care what everyone tells me about, oh, they're better without Kyrie. They need Kyrie to win if they want to win this year. And if, the, if this is his last year with the Celtics, do I want to root for the ship to go down like the Titanic? No, I don't. We might as well root for them to win a championship. But they're going to need Kyrie. But then he says something like this that's so infuriating. It's like, dude, you make twenty you made twenty million dollars this year. You're gonna sign a contract this summer that's gonna allow you to buy anything that you want for the rest of your life. 
but forget about the deal that you're going to get that's going to be close to $40 million a year this summer. How about the $20 million you made just this year? $20 million. You give me $20 million? Oh, Kyrie, it's a constant battle. You give me $20 million? You can say whatever the fuck you want about me. You can write anything you want. You can put cameras in my face. $20 million? You got... You got issues with $20 million. You give me $20 million, I have no more problems. I have no more problems. But Kyrie, it's like, you 20 mil, I'm, you're going to make 35 mil a year start next year? Uh, it is a constant battle. Shut the fuck up. That's what, that is what makes people so mad, especially in a city that loves, this, loves their team so much. Like this town, okay? Yeah, there's a lot of media here, but why? You got to think about why. Because there's a lot of money to be made in that. Media, the way they get money is by getting ratings. You know, if you're in a town where there's no ratings and people don't care about the team, there's not as much media. Why? Because, I mean, you don't need it. And media companies that maybe don't get ratings and aren't making money, they're just not going to exist. So you don't get as much media. You have a lot of media, you have a lot of cameras in your face, you have the spotlight on you, you have everybody talking about you and writing about you, and, and, and basically, you know, when it comes to the Celtics, thinking about you all the time, because we love this team so much, and ultimately, all anybody wants from Kyrie Irving is to take his $20 million this year and be lifting the championship trophy at the end when it's all said and done. That's all anybody wants. But you're going to come out Sit there, talk about the media coverage, and you're going to call it a constant battle when your bank account is just, you know, laughable, like laughably rich, $20 million. If you give me $20 million, I have no more worry. I have no more issues. I have no more problems, but yet Kyrie gets $20 million, and this is a constant battle battle for him i'll continue with Kyrie. you know um because media has just gotten just outrageous you know what i mean like i just saw some the other day where you know even you know uh you know i mean it's just he's the greatest player playing our game right now but even seeing somebody question like bron's body of work like my body of work kd's body of work and you know the team's success falls on the best player and whether call it fair or unfair, but nobody should ever question what type of winner those guys are. You know what I mean? What type of winner I am or whether or not I have the team in first mentality. You know, it's like nobody wants it to be solely about them, but we take most of the responsibility and so does the head coach. So when you have that and you have a relationship that you have to build with that, and I've been doing it of being traded last year and just coming into this, it's, it's a lot of new for our team. Uh, oh, man, I, I can't do it. You know, you can't do it, right? You can't, You get to a point where you're like, I got to stop. I got to hit stop. I could keep going. I could keep rolling. I can't do it. I got to stop. Like, you're bringing up LeBron James again. Oh, poor LeBron, right? Poor LeBron. He gets it so bad. He gets so tough. You're sticking up for LeBron again. This is another issue. This is another issue. And then you're asking for sympathy. You talk, sympathy. You're talking about the trade. Like You demanded the trade. You fool. You demanded the trade. Nobody feels bad for you, Kyrie. I get, like, I get news for you. There isn't a single person on the face of the earth that feels bad for you. Nobody. 
So cut the shit. This, this is an easy fix. And I put this on Danny Ainge too. I'm not taking Danny Ainge off the hook. Danny Ainge knew who Kyrie Irving was. He knew what his personality was better than anybody in this town. And you had to have a sense, given all the egos at play, you got some young top picks that took the team to Game 7 of the East Finals. You know, you got Kyrie coming back. Some players were going to have to, their playing time was going to take a hit. Uh, you know how good Tatum is. You're not going to take him out. Gordon Haywood's back in the mix. You know, what's that do for Jalen Brown's minutes? Um, you know, the Gordon Haywood-Brad Stevens connection, you could see how that could piss some people off. And if things don't go as well as they did last year, then something, you know, maybe you could get some issues. How could Danny Ainge not see maybe some of this coming? But I mean, not only that, now that it's happening, the trade deadline has passed. You got 18 games left leading into a game against Golden State tonight. And you just kind of, you know, you got to manage what's going on. Danny Ainge needs to manage this. He's not managing this. And we can put this on Brad Stevens, sure. But Brad Stevens has never been in this situation before. Brad Stevens, his head is probably spinning at night when he goes home. He'll never admit that to you, but he's never dealt with anything like this. He's never dealt with anything like this, Brad Stevens. Never in his life. He doesn't know He doesn't know how to deal. It's a great learning experience for Brad Stevens. But you know what? Celtics aren't looking for a learning experience for their coach right now. They're looking for somebody to step up as a leader and figure this thing out with 18 games left. So this is on Danny Ainge. Manage this thing. I tweeted out yesterday. I said, can we just get Kyrie Irving in a room with Bill Belichick for five minutes? Is that, the, and I'm, I wasn't even kidding. Send him on his, on his yacht. Give, give Kyrie Irving like three days off. I don't care. Scratch him. Send him with Bill Belichick. Tell him to go golfing with Bill. Somebody, can we get Bill Belichick around Kyrie Irving in the same room as him for like five minutes? Like, you know, it's just, it's driving me crazy. It's driving a lot of people crazy. It's unnecessary is what it is. It's so unnecessary. Kyrie doesn't need to be doing this shit. And the rest of the Celtics don't need him to be doing this stuff. And it makes you wonder, like, how big's the rift behind the scenes? Like, obviously, Kyrie doesn't care. He doesn't care. <laughs> He's talking about LeBron. Oh, he, feel, he wants sympathy for LeBron because how the media's treating him. It's insane. It's insane. Listen, dude, you got 18 games left. You make it 20 million this season. You got a chance to do something special. Will you stop? With this stuff, like, why can't you just say, hey, I'm on the Golden State? Why can't it just be as simple as that? We got Golden State this week. You know what? We had a bad game against Houston. We had Golden State. You know, that press conference he did after Houston, people were giving him shit for that. They're like, oh, quick answers, like quick responses. That's that's good. Give me the quick responses. You want to have a salty attitude to the media? If the media, like, like, and quick responses... You know, and the media then starts to get crazy because of that. You know, then that's in the media. You know, and you do got some real dickheads in the media around here, and then that's on them, and we all know who the dickheads are, and it's and it's fine. You know, they're going to be dickheads. Let them be. Don't let it bother you. You make it $20 million this season. You know? But that quick press conference that he had after the Houston game, 
I'll take that all day. That's 20 times better than what he said yesterday on Monday. Like, looking for sympathy. It it ain't going to happen. You're not going to get it. But because his team failed at the end of the day, they should be disappointed, right? Should, shouldn't they be disappointed? Well, Kyrie Irving um, says, after the game, this is no time for disappointment. Here's a little of Kyrie after the season had come to an end and after the Celtics had failed and after Kyrie was the reason that this Celtics team ended up failing in the second round. Here's Kyrie. I mean, you know, truth be told, it's, it's no time to be disappointed. I, I think that, um, you know, you take your lessons, you, you take your ass whooping that they handed us, um, and you move on. Um, you know, it's a basketball uh, journey. Obviously, you know, you, you want to keep playing, but uh, they put a halt to that, and, and they deserve this series. They, they played like they wanted it, and, and um, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing them going to the Eastern Conference Finals and playing uh, their next opponent. So, um, wait a minute, really... wait a minute, wait a minute. Just right there. I, I was watching this live, and I'm like, man, and going into this press conference, you knew he was going to say something, right? I mean, Kyrie Irving has always said something that we react to in sort of a negative way in this town. He's been doing it all year long. So you knew there was going to be something. But I was begging for a little humility from the guy, from a guy that went, like I just said, 5 for 27 from the three-point line in four straight games. You wanted a little humility from him. You know, the guy that sat there and said, you know, I'm going to take some days off at the end of the regular season because it's not about the regular season, it's about the playoffs. And then when you get to the playoffs and we expect playoff Kyrie, you don't get that. I don't know what that was. That was a Kyrie Irving that couldn't hit anything. That was a Kyrie Irving that, you know, I tweeted this out last night. People questioning now whether or not Kyrie Irving wants to stay in Boston. I'm questioning whether or not Kyrie Irving even wants to play basketball anymore because it felt like last night in Game 5 that he didn't want to play the game of basketball any longer. That's how he was out there shooting. And so I was asking and begging before this post-game press conference last night, begging for a little humility from this guy. Like, hey, I sucked. You know, I had a, this is on me. This team was looking up to me to come into this situation this year after sitting out last year with an injury in the playoffs. They went to Game 7 of the East Finals. They're expecting me to get them at least into the finals. And I didn't get the job done. I failed. And here are my numbers. I sit here every night and I look at the box score. But you know, I kind of, I even though I'm begging for that type of humility, I, I kind of had the feeling he wasn't going to give it to us, mainly because... When you go back to the previous game, game four, here's what Kyrie Irving said after... <laughs> this is this is wild, by the way. After game four. When they went down 3-1. They lose both games at the TD Garden, but this was after game four. Um, when was this? On, on Monday night. Here's what, here's what Kyrie Irving had to say after game four. You know, the expectations on me are going to be sky high. Um, and I try to utilize their aggression against them and still put my teammates in great positions while still being aggressive. I'm trying to do it all. So, um, you know, for me, the 22 shots, you know, I should have shot 30. You know, it, it really, I'm not great of a shooter. So I, I think that just the consistency of just going at it. Oh, man, I can't even listen to it anymore. He says, you know, I, tr- I have to do it all. I'm such a great shooter. I should have shot 30. Like, I mean, so I, I should have known. We weren't going to get that. We weren't going to get him 
last night saying, I sucked. Showing that humility. We weren't going to get that from him. I was begging for it. We, we, we weren't going to get that. Um, what we got instead was a guy who said, and I'll play it again for you because you need to hear it, is that, that right now, <laughs> this is moments after the season's over. He says, now there's no time for disappointment. I can't believe it. Here it is again. I mean, you know, truth be told, it's, it's no time to be disappointed. I, I think that, um, you know, you take your lessons, you, you take your ass whooping that they handed us, um, and you move on. Um, you know, it's a basketball uh, journey. Obviously, you know, you, you want to keep playing, but uh, they put a halt to that, and, and they deserve this series. They, they played like they wanted it, and, and um, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing them going to the Eastern Conference Finals and playing uh, their next opponent. Looking forward uh, to it. I, again, another thing, not only does he say there's no time for disappointment, well, first of all, go back and try to tell that to the rest of your teammates. Because I watched the Al Horford press conference when he was standing in front of, in, in the locker room in front of his locker after the game. And he seemed to be pretty disappointed. You should be disappointed. It's okay to be disappointed after you fail. And especially after you're the reason that your team fails. A normal reaction. He said something else in his press conference where he was like, you know, I, I'm just trying to get home safely and see my family and decompress like a normal human. Well, normal humans would be disappointed in a situation that you're currently in. In a situation that you're currently in because you sucked. Go in that locker room and ask me if, if people are disappointed. And try to tell everybody in that locker room on that Celtics team, that team, that group of kids that you called out all year, that was in Game 7 of the East Finals last year, try to tell them that losing in the second round in five games... Try to tell them that this is no time for disappointment. That's a joke. I don't understand that. And then, right afterwards, saying, you know what? I'm looking forward to, to, to watching Milwaukee in the, in the next round. What? What do you mean you're looking forward to watching Milwaukee? I was looking forward to watching the Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals. This loss wasn't even really, you know, this loss was... When did he talk, Kyrie? 20 minutes after the game ended? I mean, this wasn't even finished for... This game wasn't even finished for 30 minutes. This was 20 minutes after the game. He's saying, uh, this is no time for disappointment. I'm looking forward to seeing Milwaukee in the East Finals. What are you talking about? Here's more Kyrie. Uh, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a great op- uh, opponent for, for me to play against for the rest of my career because I know I won't forget something like this. And, um, you know, the, the taste of, of feeling defeat in, the, you know, in this type of style, you know, being down 1-4, uh, you know, I, I haven't felt. So, you know, for me, it's just moving on to the, the next thing um, and just seeing where, where that ends up. All right, we'll see where that ends up. But Kyrie continued after another question to praise the Bucks. Here's Kyrie again on the Bucks. And like I said, I give credit when credit is due. Giannis is an unbelievable player. He's been doing unbelievable things this year, as well as Chris. Um, and they fill in very well. They're they're a great, well-run team. So I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm glad that we we got to feel this in the eyes of of looking at a great team like that. Well, <laughs> I'm glad we got to feel this. This. I don't know if Kyrie was just making it a point to not knock his own team that he said, I'm just going to praise the Bucks and whatever comes out, comes out. But I don't know if in the back of the head he had this little voice that was like, don't call out anyone on your own team because then that'll be really bad. It'll be worse than praising the Bucks. 
And maybe he, that voice was so loud in the back of his head saying, don't knock your own team. Don't criticize your own group. Maybe that voice was so loud that he couldn't even understand what he was saying about the Bucks. I'm glad, I'm glad this happened. Can't wait to watch the Bucks. There's no time for disappointment. That's a great team. I mean, it tells the story. That with the Rosia stuff, it tells the story. Kyrie Irving, the Kyrie Irving Celtics, if you had one word to describe them, what would it be? What word would you use to describe the Kyrie Irving Celtics this season? I got a word for you. Hotless. This group was hotless. I mean, and it was... That that heartless tone that they set was infectious. I mean, you saw Marcus Smart, he hit a dude hard after, at the end of the game on Milwaukee. I forget who it was. He's giving him two hands, helping him up off the court. That's not the Marcus Smart I know. The Marcus Smart I know is, you know, maybe standing over a guy as he's on top of him, chirping at him, telling, don't you try to bring that on me. I don't care how hard I hit you. I'll hit you harder the next time. That's the Marcus Smart I know. He's helping guys up from Milwaukee at the end of this game last night. This was embarrassing. This was embarrassing. This was this was a a total embarrassment, and it begins and it ends with their superstar. This is the league. This is the NBA. It's a superstar-driven league. If you're the superstar and you talk, you're talking all year long, this, that, and the other thing, and you don't show up and you suck. You know. The things he was saying after, it's just, it really sums it up. So what's next? What's next for Kyrie Irving? What's next for Kyrie, who had 15 points in this game five, who was awful in the four losses in this series, who's the reason the Celtics season is over? What's next for Kyrie Irving? You heard what he had to say. No time for disappointment. Praising the Bucks. Um, I mean, the good thing is he didn't knock his own team, right? But at the same time, it's like, I mean... You should be disappointed. Everyone in that organization is disappointed. Um, and, you know, you didn't really put anything on yourself. The fact that he didn't come out and say, this is on me. I was horrible. I got to be better than this. You go back to the audio I played you after game four. He's like, oh, I'm trying to do it all. You know, and I'm a great shooter. I should have taken 30 shots. <laughs> like, take all the shots you want. How about you start hitting some? Is that a crazy concept? Look, like I told you all season long, I wanted the Celtics to re-sign Kyrie Irving. I did. I wanted them to re-sign Kyrie because I thought he would be somebody in the playoffs that would help this team win a championship and that you have success in the playoffs. If Kyrie Irving came out with scoring 30, 35 you know, hitting his three-pointers, hitting big shots, I mean, you go back to game four and even in game five, Milwaukee in the first half, they kept the Celtics in the game. I know Marcus Morris and Marcus Smart had a big, they did a nice job. They played a big role in game five with their defensive presence, more specifically Marcus Morris. But let's be fair, Milwaukee was missing shots as much as the Celtics were in the first half. But in game four and in game five, the Celtics should have had, I mean, what was the score of game five? 116 and 91. The Celtics should have had 135 points in Game 5. They should have had 150 points in Game 4. But they were so bad offensively that 
but, but when you're that bad offensively, at some point you're looking for your superstar to kick it into high gear and say, hey, this is my team. You know, this is what I wanted, right? And, and uh, you know, I, I sound like LeBron all year long. I sound like I want to be LeBron. I have a chance to be LeBron. Please, LeBron, LeBron would have whooped this Milwaukee team. He would have. He would have. LeBron would have embarrassed this Milwaukee team. All right. He he would have. And Kyrie didn't even come close. He he didn't even come close. Kyrie got embarrassed. Kyrie got bitch slapped in this series. Not literally, but he, he did. I mean, he he. Kyrie got bitched out in this series by the Milwaukee Bucks. That's what happened. Joining me over the phone right now is Kendrick Perkins, former Celtic and, of course, NBA champion. What's up, Perk? Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me on, man. How you doing? I'm doing good. It's funny. You know, I, I told someone this morning, Perk's coming on my show, and the first thing they said was, uh, Perk's been everywhere. He's been on every show. And I, I had to laugh at that, and it's true, but... Uh, you know, so do I call you an analyst now? Is that what I'm saying? You know, I say Celtic, NBA champion. <laughs> do I now call you an analyst? Uh, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that right now. I'm just, you know, right now I'm just, you know, just enjoying the retirement and, and, and voicing my opinion about basketball and really just, you know, just touching all the surfaces. I mean, touching all the, you know, doing everything, going around, you know, doing a little bit of everything. So I wouldn't say that just yet, but it's part of the plan, though. It is. So you would like to be a full-time media member? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind at all. I think it's a, it's a great job. I think, you know, get to do still talk about something that I that I know that I've been doing all my life. So I think it's a it's a it's an opportunity. I think that might be there for me in the future. Yeah, absolutely. You got a strong opinion, and and I mean that's what it takes, right, to make it in this industry, uh, in the sports media. But what if I told ten years ago? What if I told the twenty four year old Kendrick Perkins that when he retired, he would be <laughs> making his media rounds, going on shows, and giving his analysis of the NBA playoffs and of, of the, the current Celtics teams. What what would the 24-year-old Perk tell me if I told him that? Man, I, would, I wouldn't even believe you, D. I wouldn't even believe you. I'd say, man, nah, that, went, that ain't me. I'd probably be coaching or something, but I don't know about the, the uh, analysts, man. I'd probably just start laughing. I wouldn't even believe you. That Celtics team, the championship team, that group – you know, I, I listened to a story you told with Woj on his podcast last month where you talk about the trade to OKC. And, um, you know, I always think of that team and that group. And my question is always, do you guys, uh, how often does that group, how often do you think back at that team and, and you know, not just, you know, look back at your greatness because you guys were a great team, but how, how often do you look back and think, what could have been? I mean, with the injuries and, and obviously the trade. Um, do you ever think back of what could have been? And how often do you think back to that? Man, I, you know what? I think about that all the time. Uh, I think about that team, man, all the time, man. That was, you know, out of my whole career, that was the funnest team, best team i ever been on, man. And, you know, I just think about, you know, we was healthy, you know, how many – how many championships we really could have bought to the city of Boston. 
Um, I thought we could have did three in a row, to be honest, man. But, you know, you think about the crazy thing is you think about the game seven. I think about the game seven more than I think about when when we won it in 08. I think about the game seven we lost in, in 2010 than the one then uh more than the championship, man. And it's crazy because, you know, every time you watch basketball, like any time I'm watching a game on TV, I'd be like, man, shoot, our, our team with Boston, man, we would have beat these guys or mm. something like that. Or I wonder what they, you know, like just thinking like that. And it always go back to that 2018 what what sticks out when you think about that game seven? Is there one thing in particular that jumps out at you? Well, just one name that jumps out at me, Ron Artest, <laughs> man. I remember him just playing. I was like, he just went crazy during that game in the fourth quarter, man. And I think he really was like the unsung hero of that game that, that, that you know, that's the reason that they beat us. But I think about how we had a 14-point lead going into the fourth quarter. I think about all that. All right. Well, I'm always curious because, you know, we're spoiled in this town. And I think we were even spoiled with that team. You know, as great as we knew you guys were and as much as we loved that team, you know, I think we were all left feeling like, you know, we wanted more. And it sounds like you feel the same way with that group. Oh, absolutely. And I think if you go down the line and ask any one of the guys who played on the team or either one of the coaches, they would probably tell you the same thing. Yeah. Well, you told that story about the trade on Woj's podcast. You also said on that podcast that you want to be a head coach in the NBA. Is that is that still your plan? I know we just sort of talked about the, you know, the media aspect is, and you being an analyst. That is one of my ultimate goals. And the, and, and the reason being is just because, you know, I love the game. I love being around basketball. I love dropping knowledge. You know, I got, I've been around a lot of, lot of great basketball minds. And, you know, in my opinion, I think the big men that played in the NBA don't get enough credit about knowing the game of basketball. And I think that, if you go down the line and look, all the head coaches in the league, all the head coaches in the league that played the game were uh, current point, were uh, back in the day were point guards, mm. and they're not the only people that know the game. I, me and Rondo argue about basketball all the time just because he feels some type of way and I feel some type of way. So we go back and forth on the phone all the time. So head coach is is that your ultimate goal, head coach? Yeah, that is that is my ultimate goal. So, so how do you you got to become a, an assistant first, right? Is that usually the step? I mean, not, I mean it is, but not really. You just gotta, I mean, you know, the opportunity just have to present itself. You never know. I mean, like you could be like a dairy fisher and walk right into a head coaching job, or you might have to take the assistant role. I don't mind. I don't mind at all. I don't mind putting in the groundwork. Uh, and taking baby steps to get where I got to go. But I just want to be a guy that's able to progress and, and, and stuff like that. I asked that question about the assistant coach because the Celtics are going to have an assistant coaching position opening up. Um, you know, if if they came to you, is that something that you would be interested in? And not saying they will or they won't, or, or but but if it is op- if it does actually open up, which it's looking like it will, 
and they came to you. Is that, that something you'd be interested in? Absolutely. I mean, you can't turn down it's certain things you can't turn down, and that's one of them. Uh, and then being back in Boston, uh, the city that 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 basically raised me for my NBA career, and you know, gave me, you know, was the first people to take a chance on me. And, Stuck by my side, I mean, you have no choice but to accept a job like that, man. And those jobs are not easy to come by, by the way. You know, they have a lot of guys in this in this basketball world that's been trying to get on the assistant coaching, that, that's been trying to get on the coaching staff in the NBA for a long time and haven't had the opportunity. So I know if it was, to, if, the, if the situation was, the opportunity was presented itself, I probably would really have to consider taking their job. It sounds like you would almost want to go after that position instead of sitting back and waiting for it to come to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got to put in the groundwork. Like I said, like, you know, right now I'm down at the combine and I'm coaching a combine right now uh, this week. So, you know, I'm just doing a little bit of everything, just getting my foot in the door and getting my feet wet a little bit. So, absolutely, you got to go after those type of jobs. All right, well, speaking of the Celtics, um, they're a hot topic in this town, as you know, and you've been uh, very outspoken about this Celtics team that lost in the second round to the Milwaukee Bucks, and now we're all trying to figure out what happens next. Where does this team go? NBA free agency begins on July 1st. The big name is Kyrie Irving. Now Terry Rozier is, is talking to the media. But first, when you look back at the Celtics season, Perk, who should get mm-hmm. the most blame for how it ended? Well, I know, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, you just got to look at, I mean, you got to look at the writing on the wall. Uh, I think if you, if you're watching the game, and you, if you, if you're watching the Celtics play, you can see it, man, from a team that was last year, how, how they jailed together and was loving to play with one another. And then you watch it this year. I mean, you could give a lot of blame to a lot of guys on the team. I mean, but you st- always got to start off with your leader. Uh, you always got to start off with your leader, man. And the leader of the team was Kyrie. Uh, I think Kyrie didn't carry himself well uh, as a leader on the team. I didn't think he led by example. Um, and like I said before, he didn't represent what Celtic Pride was all about. And then you go down the line. I mean, you expected more out of Gordon Haywood. Uh, you know, even uh, you know, Big Al Horford. I mean, you know, you expected more out of him. Also, I mean, he didn't he didn't really have, you know, his best games during the playoff season. So, I mean, you know, Jason Tatum had a little drop off. So it could be consistently. I mean, I just, you know, it's hard to place blame on Brad just because, for the simple fact. I can only imagine what he was going through at that time, you know, trying to control, trying to control all egos and and stuff like that, man. It's you know, and, and the locker room and managed minutes, and you know, you know that guys are not buying into your system. That's pretty hard. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I think Kyrie is to blame. He he was the superstar in this team. He did not show up in the four losses to Milwaukee. He was five for twenty-seven from the three-point line. I mean, that nineteen percent—that that's horrible. Kyrie was bad in that game five on the road. It was a must-win. He had fifteen points. But you know what frustrated me the most out of Kyrie, really all year long, 
was just the things he said, you know, the things he said to the media. And in that Game 5 postgame, Perk, he's sitting up there saying, you know, this is no time to be disappointed. And and I couldn't believe he said that because if there's ever a time to be disappointed, I'm thinking this would be it. If, you're, if right. you were a teammate of his and you heard him say this is no time to be disappointed, I mean, how would you react to that? Right. I mean, it's just I watched it, man. And, and like I said, it was very disturbing to watch. Like just to sit up there and listen to him say that just showed that to me, he really didn't care. So, I mean, you had to, it, it, you know, he, he showed it to us. So we had to, you know, I had to believe it. Like, yeah, this guy really don't care about being in Boston. Obviously, he don't know what it means. He don't know what it means to play for the Celtics, in my opinion. So, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I just feel like, you know, I listened to the to the game five action. And that's what, part of me, that's what made me come out and say he was a poor leader and he didn't care. and He didn't lead by example. I mean, you don't get, you don't get knocked out the playoffs and just, feel that type of way. He was talking about how he couldn't wait to finish watching the Bucks play and stuff like that. And I'm looking at it like, man, are you serious? This is really coming out your mouth right now? Yeah, I mean, it was fresh too. It was like 20 minutes after the game ended. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And you're right, that that line about Milwaukee. I can't wait to watch Milwaukee in the next round. I'm sitting, Perk. I'm sitting here going, what do you mean? I can't. I wanted to watch you guys, the Celtics, in the next round. What are you talking about with Milwaukee? Right. Right. I lost. I lost the. I lost the. Uh, I lost the. I had to pay for Nick Wright dinner because the, you didn't want to come out there and lead by example or play and leave it all out on the court. I'm like, man, like he just didn't represent it, man. And for him to do all the talking about he's the leader and this is time of the year and he's ready and all this, you know, that's what furthermore showed me that he's not a Batman. I mean, you know, most guys that come out and, and say things, you know, that's really, really good and great players, they come out and they back it up. Yeah, and he did not back it up. And I think that's the one thing with Kyrie that I said all year long. You know, he, it was tough to root for him because of the things he was saying. But I always came back to, well, you know what? I know what he can be in the playoffs. And if he's going to be that in the playoffs – this is a, a league in which he can dominate in the playoffs and help this team get a championship. So I wasn't running him out of town because I knew what he could be in the playoffs. But if you're not going to be that guy, that Batman, like you said, in the playoffs, then what are we doing here, right? I mean, you, you know, this is basically just a big headache that nobody in this town and in this organization needs. So I guess my next question for you, Perk, is with all of this said about Kyrie, he, he is gone. he's leaving, right? He's not coming back to the Celtics? I mean, the way the way he went about it, I would think so. Um, you know, it's just it's something about how he went about it. I mean, like, you know, the way he, like I said, you listen to his game five and you watch his body language and stuff like that, man, I mean, you would think that he's gone. I, to me, I think he has one foot out the door. I have not even looked at or watched any Stanley Cup celebration today. And, you know, it's understandable that people here in this town wouldn't do that because it's tough to watch because we all know that that cup should be the Bruins Cup, right? Or at least we all thought that was going to be the Bruins Cup. I told you throughout the playoffs, this was the Bruins Stanley Cup to lose. It really felt like that. 
And that, you know, the the further we went on, it felt like the Con Smythe, the MVP, was was Tuka Rask's trophy to lose. That was it. It was only his to lose. This was the Bruins' season to lose. I mean, they came out. You know, they got they some things went their way with regards to the brackets and the playoffs. And maybe they didn't have the most difficult route to the Stanley Cup final. But that didn't mean they weren't ready or capable of winning the Cup. Uh, I think, I mean, I thought when St. Louis was the team that we found out the Bruins are going to play, yeah, I, I actually wanted to see that. I didn't want San Jose because I just thought, eh, maybe, you know, San Jose's they've been knocking on the door the last couple of years. They've been knocking on the door for so long. Maybe this is just their time. And I didn't want to see that. Um, but I even watched a lot of St. Louis, especially in that, what was it? The second round against Dallas. And I'm, I'm watching them going, you know, what you do is you watch teams in the West and you watch other teams that the Bruins could face. And, you know, you try to match them up in your head as you're watching them play. And I'm, I'm watching St. Louis going, oh, the Bruins will in the offensive zone. I know St. Louis, you know, they, they want to be a heavy team, but the, the Bruins, they're just. I don't know. There's something about the Bruins' energy, their speed, their skill. I I just don't think St. Louis will have a shot against the Bruins. So much so that going into the Stanley Cup Final, I told you that the Bruins would win it in five. Okay? And when the Bruins went up two games to one in this series, I was telling you it's very possible. They could win both in St. Louis, have the Cup in the building at the TD Garden in Game 5, and win it that night. Well, that didn't happen. They lost Game 4 in St. Louis, and then they lost Game 5 at the TD Garden. They went into St. Louis in Game 6 and won Game 6, forcing a Game 7. And, you know, Game 7, the whole the phrase, anything can happen in a Game 7, it, that, that's, that's why you don't really want Game 7s. You know, if you think you get a team that's capable of winning a championship, you'd like to avoid that Game 7, especially in the Stanley Cup playoffs, and especially, you know, here in this town, we know what it's like to be the underdog on the road in a Game 7 and win the Stanley Cup. 2011, the Bruins did it in Vancouver. And there was something about that Game 7 that I could not get out of my mind all day yesterday. All day yesterday on Wednesday, leading up to Game 7 later Wednesday night. I, that was the longest day of my life yesterday. It was It was the longest day of my life. And a lot of the thoughts going through my mind was 2011 Vancouver. And, and, and some people might have said, well, why, wouldn't, why would you think of that? Like, what about the, the 2013 loss to Chicago at the Garden in which the Blackhawks hoisted the Stanley Cup at the TD Garden? I said, well, that was, you know, Chicago, I, I don't know. Like, there was, a, there was a, just a, a different, I felt like there was a different feel in that series. Like, you know how good Chicago is. You know the type of players they have. If you told me going into that series in 2013 that Chicago was going to win the Cup and beat the Bruins, you know, I, I wouldn't tell you you're crazy. But at the, at the same time, going back to 2011... If you had told me that Vancouver, in their own building, would win that game seven, obviously I'm rooting for the Bruins in that in that moment, but if you had told me Vancouver, in their own building, wins that game seven, I'd say, well, you're not nuts either. We know what it feels like to be the underdog and see the underdog go on the road and win the cup in a game seven. And so that thought of how the Bruins looked and they came out and they're scoring goals and I'm like, uh, you know, I'm like, what if St. Louis gets a couple? And, and, and you know what's weird about it? The... 
the first goal that I envision for St. Louis when I'm thinking about the worst case scenario, you know, you try to get the worst case scenario stuff out of the way, right? You, you, you try to, you try to brace yourself for it just in case, just in case. And like the thought that I had in my mind was a shot from the point that gets redirected, that gets by Tuca, silences the crowd, and all you hear is St. Louis celebrating. And not only are they celebrating that goal, but it would feel like they are celebrating, oh shit, they are about to come in and do what we did, do what the Bruins did in Vancouver in 2011. And what happened? St. Louis did exactly that in the first period. Ryan O'Reilly standing in the slot, Gets a stick on a redirection shot from the point. What was it? Bowmeister from the point. It beats Tuca. You can hear it hit the back of the net. The padding in the back. The crowd goes silent. All you hear is St. Louis celebrating. Oh, man. That is that is the sound. That was the sound of St. Louis winning the Stanley Cup. We didn't know it at the time, but that was the sound. The puck hitting the padding on the back of the net for the first goal in that first period. And it wasn't just because it was a St. Louis goal and they got the first goal. And that's a big goal getting the first goal in a game seven with the cup in the building. Right? Not just because of that. But I, I, I do think we can we can criticize the Bruins and, and Tuca in this game and, and, the, and Brad Marchand for, for the line change that he had and, and the way he played. The, I'll get to that goal. People are going to get on those guys for that. In my opinion, the biggest difference, the, the, the game-changing moment or moments, if you will, was before the O'Reilly tip-in and redirection that gave St. Louis a one nothing lead, the Bruins had so many chances that they probably should have been up 4 nothing before O'Reilly redirected that in. This Game 7 was about missed opportunities. And I mentioned in the intro, a, an absolute no-show. Well, when it comes to effort and energy, maybe the Bruins provided that in the first period for the most part, right? With all the scoring chances they had, with all the shots on net. But you got to finish, man. I, I mean, they were, they made, they gave Bennington so much confidence in that first period that you saw where that confidence took Bennington's game in the second period and then in the third, right? And then in the third period when he makes that stop on Nordstrom, that basically when he throws that right pad out in the third period on Nordstrom midway through the third, Nordstrom on the doorstep, he kicks it up to himself, he waits, he waits, he waited a little too long. He allowed Bennington to take his left skate dig into the ice to be able to push over to get that right pad over. Nordstrom needed to kick that and flip it up quickly, and that's a goal. He waited a little too long. But at the same time, Bennington made a fantastic stop, and the minute he makes that stop, even though it was 2 nothing at the time, you're thinking to yourself, that's the game. I mean, that's it. That was it. When Bennington makes that stop on Nordstrom, you might as well have just given them the cup. You might as well just, you know... Sounded the buzzer, ended the game early, and given St. Louis the cup at that moment. What happened a few minutes later? Braden Shen, he scores. I don't know what McAvoy was doing. McAvoy was covering his own goalie. I, I don't get it. It's not like there was another Blues player at the right post that he was trying to uh, take away the passing lane. You know, you got to be aware. And I, he was not aware that there was nobody on that at that right post coming in. The only Blues player was Shen coming into the zone at that moment. You had 
two guys on his ass right behind him. And McAvoy, I mean, I, you know, you can't give him that much space in between uh, him and the go- him and you. And, and, and the goalies, but I don't know what McAvoy was doing there. But anyways, it, it, that didn't even matter. Shen scores the goal. It's 3 nothing, But it didn't matter. A few minutes before then, the minute Bennington makes that right pad stop on Nordstrom, the game's over. The game's over. Um... But the confidence that Bennington had to even make that stop, the Bruins gave him that confidence in the first period. I don't think Bennington stood on his head in the in the first. I thought the Bruins had missed opportunities. I mean, Johansson whiffed on a on an open net at the right post at one point. Pasternak whiffed on like three one timers from the top of the left circle. Brad Marchand maybe had the best opportunity. He had a shot from the high slot. Bennington was so far out of the net. To his left, Marchand had the whole left side of the net open. The entire net side of the net. And he shot it into Bennington, who was basically outside of the net. And so, you know, they made it easy on Bennington. Krejci getting that pass from Krug, the beautiful pass right out front. He couldn't bury. I know I'm probably missing a couple. Corrali had a shot. Um... And, and, you know, the Bruins were getting so many bounces. The, the ice was bad. You know, you can't, you can't blame the game on the bad ice because both teams had bad ice. It's not like the ice was just bad for the Bruins. It was bad for the Blues, too. But the Bruins dominated play with all their scoring opportunities in the first period. And I think they, you know, they just couldn't finish. They couldn't bury. They were squeezing the stick tight. Uh, they didn't have any finish in them. And in, in, in that regard, they no-showed offensively, and they gave Bennington confidence, and then what are you feeling at that point in the first? You get all these opportunities, all these bounces, they're not going in. What are you feeling? You know, I'm starting to feel like, well, St. Louis is going to get a bounce here, and I just feel like they're going to get some type of bounce, and it's going to go in. So you got to get one soon. They didn't get one. St. Louis got a bounce. They got that redirection in from O'Reilly. one nothing St. Louis. And, uh, you know, you get that first one, and you start, you know, if you're St. Louis, they, they, it was such a difference maker for them. Just from a confidence standpoint, I mentioned Bennington's confidence, the entire team. I mean, think about it. Look at that, look back at that first period. St. Louis was so scared. Everybody on that team, it seemed like, was just playing, you, you know, like they were skating on eggshells. They didn't want to, nobody wanted to be the guy to make that big mistake or create that big turnover. They were playing so nervous, St. Louis was. They were so nervous. But you know what happens to those nerves when you get that first goal and you're up one nothing? You start to loosen up. You start, you know, you start to, you're not as afraid to make that mistake. Because, you know, if you make a mistake at that point, well, it's just a tie game and it's basically a 0-0 game again. So you loosen up. But if you get that next one, you go up 2-0, well, you're as loose as you've ever been. And then you can start putting, you know, three guys back and clogging up the neutral zone. And, 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 and this becomes your game. And that second goal late in the first period was a dagger. It was a dagger. And I know we're going to talk about Brad Marchand and his line change. It was not a smart line change. But you know what? I am not as upset about the dumb line change on his end as I was the way he played that from a defensive perspective. He was a defenseman in that moment. It was a one-on-two. Go back and watch it. It was a one-on-two with 12 seconds left. 
Marchand, all you got to do is become a defenseman. Instead, he tried to step up at the blue line and hit him with an elbow. Dumb. That was his... And, and maybe he you know, he made the mistake because he was winded. It was the end of a shift. He was clearly gassed. But, man, no excuse. You know, this is something you're taught in peewee hockey. Like, there's a one-on-two. You're covering for a defenseman. Play the... Make, make the play like a defenseman would. No defenseman in the league would step up and try to hit him with an elbow there. Guy's coming at you full speed. It's not like Marchand was just flat-footed as he was coming in. He had... He had time. He was skating backwards. Make him take make him take that puck wide. Right? Block a shot. Play it like a defenseman. Moshan didn't. He didn't want anything to do with that play from a defensive standpoint because he was gassed. D- Ten seconds left. So I- I'm not as upset with the line change as much as I am just but be- what he did before he-, he jumped off the ice to leave a guy wide open at the top of the circle. It, it, it was the way he played that, which was just just mind-blowing to me. And I watched it again today a couple of times. I'm like, I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what he's thinking stepping up at the blue line there. I just don't. That that, that seems like such a routine play. It's a one-on-two. You're a defenseman at that point. You're covering for your D-man. Play like one for 10 seconds. Is it that difficult? He couldn't do it. And uh, should Tuca have saved that? Yeah, probably he should have. You'd like to see him save that, right? I mean, because in reality, that's the game. I know it looks like the game winner. A 4-1 win for St. Louis. You know, the Bruins get one late in the third. The most meaningless goal on the season for the Bruins. Um, But that second goal at the end of the first... You gotta you gotta stop it, but you just gotta prevent it in the first place. You do. You gotta prevent it. But really, even at that point, the Bruins should have been up. The Bruins should have had four goals at that point. And I'm I don't think that's an exaggeration. Go back and look at the scoring chances. And I'm probably missing a couple, by the way. I'm probably missing a couple. I mean, they were whiffs on open nets. They were uh, you know, pucks that they were putting right into the chest of Bennington when, when they had a, a, a lot of open space behind Bennington, and they gave him the confidence, and the two goals that St. Louis got, they come out in the second period, you know, they, all of a sudden, they're saying, you, you, know, you talk about layers, or however you want to put it, St. Louis is like, you know, you're not going to get a clean look in the offensive zone. You're not. You know, whatever goals you get from here on out, they're going to have to be greasy. They're going to have to be dirty. You're going to have to get... We're going to make you get a bounce. And St. Louis weathered the storm in the first period. The Bruins could not capitalize. And uh, the Blues team at that point from the second period on, they were just playing with a different type of confidence. Nobody was nobody was scared to make a mistake. And that's a, that's a dangerous thing because that's a... Any team in the NHL that, that's playing... Like that, at that point, at that stage of the season, is tough to beat. And you look at, just look at the block shots. St. Louis, 21 block shots. The Bruins, seven. Uh, St. Louis was, you know, they weren't losing that game. And even if you thought they had a shot with it still being a 2 nothing game in the third period, Nordstrom on the doorstep. The minute Bennington makes that save, it's over. It's over. 
It's over. St. Louis hoisting the Stanley Cup at the TD Garden. I mean, I still can't believe it because, again, it just feels like incomplete. It just felt like it feels like we still got to play the game seven, right? Um, and I look, will the conversation today be about Tuca? If it is in a negative way, I'm t- again, my advice is to just change the channel. Like, you're, you're an adult. Change the channel. Hit the button. You can, you can figure that out. Because that's just stupidity. The Bruins wouldn't be in a Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final if not for Tuka Rask. All right? Okay? They probably would have lost to Columbus in the second round. They probably would have lost to Toronto in the first round. So, I mean, to sit here today and put this on Tuka, I mean, I still think you could have given him the con Smythe. Now, they didn't give it to him because, I think because St. Louis scored four goals. Right, they scored four. The fourth goal St. Louis scored, by the way, I don't even remember. I was, you know, once Bennington makes that right pad save on Nordstrom, me and producer Pete were sitting here watching the game in the studio, and then you get the Shen goal. There was like a six to eight minute span where we didn't say a word after that Bennington stop because we both knew. I mean, we both knew. That's it. And then you're trying to, you know, then your brain is like behind on all of it. And you're, then you're trying to process the Shen goal and you're like, three nothing. Well, how could this be? You know, there's so many opportunities. I just keep coming back to the missed opportunities in the first period. And after the third St. Louis goal, you're trying to process it all. The fourth goal, I don't even remember. I don't, I don't remember it. I don't even want to go watch it. Why would I watch that? It's meaningless. It didn't mean anything. Even if it was 3 nothing when the Bruins scored their goal with two minutes left. Meaningless. You're not going to win that game. It was over. That game was over. On And I say it was over when Bennington made the right pad stop. That game was over when O'Reilly redirected it in. And it hit the back of the padding in the net. And the crowd went silent. And you could hear St. Louis celebrate. And they might as well been celebrating the Stanley Cup right then and there. Because it wasn't just the St. Louis goal to put them up on nothing. It was a St. Louis goal after they weathered the storm. They weathered it. And they weathered it with the help of the Bruins. The Bruins gave them shelter in the storm that they were providing. And so while maybe it, it kind of looked good from a momentum standpoint, there was still something missing, and that something missing was the finish. And the Bruins had no finish in Game 7, and it makes it a complete no-show because they should have scored five, six goals in this game, and instead they allowed St. Louis to weather the storm. They gave Bennington all the confidence in the world, and uh, the Blues got a couple bounces at that point, and it was over. It was done. But if people are going to put this on Tuca today, uh, you know what to do. Change the channel. Right? I mean, because if you're putting it on Tuca today, if you're putting this on Tuca Rass today, you're one of two, one, you're doing one of two things. You're either trying to purposely fire people up because, you know, you need the people to pay your bills because you want phone calls in your radio show or you want ratings on your TV show or you want people to read your columns, or use it as clickbait online. 
That's one. Or two, you're showing your stupidity. That's it. It's one of two things. So no logical human that doesn't have an agenda today should be saying that this is on Tuka Rask. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And I, like I said, I think you could have given him the con Smythe. Con Smythe, if I'm, if I believe I'm correct on this, it's MVP for the entire playoffs, right? Now, O'Reilly had, I get it, the goals that he had in these finals, but I think because Tuca let up four goals, like I think if this game ended 2-0, I think they might give the consummate to Tuca. But because it was four, maybe it changed their mind on that. Maybe, maybe, maybe it changed people's mind. But season's over. Blues have the cup. I cannot recall I cannot recall ever being this. How do I say it? Um, I just have no interest in watching the Blues carry the cup around. And and I know you could say, well, that's because you're a Bruins fan. Well, eh. even when Chicago beat the Bruins in 2013, like, I still watched them celebrate. I watched videos of it. I was in the building that night as a reporter in 2013. And I will never forget hearing the Chicago Blackhawks celebrating right down the hall. As we were going in the Bruins dressing room, interviewing them, going in the press conference room. You know, I mean, Patrick Kane literally walking by the Bruins locker room to get to the press conference room with the Stanley Cup. And somebody else behind him holding holding the Conn Smythe. Well, it was Kane, right? That year, who won the Conn Smythe? Either way, I remember the Conn Smythe sitting up on the, on the stage next to him. Um, I'll never forget that. I was not in the building last night. I can't even imagine what it was like to hear that stupid song Gloria playing at the Garden down the hall. And you know, you know they were blasting that. But, uh, you know, even after 2013, seeing all that stuff, like, I still watched their celebration. I still watched. I, I guess I was able to stomach it. Um, but this one, I can't. I, I Because... I don't feel like St. Louis was the better team. I just don't. I feel like that was just an incomplete effort by the Boston Bruins because they had opportunities in the first and they no-showed from a finish perspective. They were squeezing the sticks tight. They were whiffing on shots. They were not accurate with anything. You know, they had open nets. They were putting it instead putting it in Bennington's chest. They had beautiful looks. I mean, you couldn't ask for better scoring opportunities in your own building in the first period of a game seven. And they just, it was like every opportunity that they had when they were close to the net, the puck in their stick, they shit their pants. They no-showed. Incomplete. That's the effort I give the Bruins in game seven. Because of the lack of finish. All they needed to do was finish there a couple of those times. And, and this cup is theirs. That's all they needed to do. And they, they were given the opportunities. They could not. They could not finish, and uh, it just—it's incomplete. And, and I, I, I don't think St. Louis is the better team. They just weathered the storm and got a bounce of their own on a redirection, and then, you know, we could talk about that second goal, the Marchand shift change. But really, it was over after the first, wasn't it? I mean, it was. It was over after the first goal. So if you're a Colts fan and you're sitting there or standing there at Lucas Oil Stadium at a preseason game, by the way. 
You paid big money to get a preseason ticket. That's how much you love the team. You're wearing an Andrew Luck jersey, as most of the people in that building were that night. You're looking down at Andrew Luck. Walking off the field. Reading on your phone that he's retiring at age 29. A week, two weeks before the regular season begins. A regular season in which you're standing there going, wait a minute. 20 minutes ago, you thought you had a chance to maybe get to the Super Bowl. That's how much you believe in Andrew Luck. That's how much you love Andrew Luck. That's how much this team means to you. Andrew Luck, that man that y'all looking at walking off the field, he represented every little bit of hope that you had in the organization that you just spent big money to go watch in a preseason game wearing that guy's jersey. That wasn't... That probably wasn't very cheap either. And when you're reading this on your phone and you react in a negative way, I am not going to sit here today or jump on Twitter and stand on my soapbox and try to tell these fans how they should react to that. Because that is such a unique, unprecedented situation. In the moment, there's going to be frustration. I'm sorry. There's frustration. And it's it, it, it's not that those people don't wish the best for Andrew Luck. It's not. But people have taken it. The outrage culture, they've taken it and they say, nope, you don't care about Luck. You don't care about his health. You don't care about his uh, mental state, mental well-being. You don't care about any of that. You're selfish. You know, you have... You, you're brainless, and you should go seek help. There's something wrong with you. That's what they've said. That's what the outrage culture have said today on Twitter. And I've defended the fans. I said, no, 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 no. Here's the deal. Here's my stance on it. Again, Andrew Luck has every right to walk away. I, he's got health issues, you know, some some mental issues that have come along with that, I am sure, and I feel for the kid. He obviously, watching that press conference, um, this was an emotional moment. But he obviously doesn't want to play football anymore. But at the same time, I don't just expect a fan base that loves their team, that loves their quarterback, that is watching him walk off the field, reading on their phone that this is a guy who's just calling it quits. He made $100 million. He's calling it quits. They live and die by this team. And they're just going to go, oh, you know what? Thank you. Like, in that moment... In that moment, don't tell me, like, look, if Andrew Luck returns to Lucas Oil Stadium and he's in the, he's in the onus suite in the middle of the season, or, or let's say next season, and fans are still booing him, I mean, there's an issue there. We could start, you know, we could start knocking fans for that. I, I believe you get to a certain point where it's like, okay, I'm talking about in that moment, and so was everybody else on Twitter today, because they were all reacting to that moment, to a video that showed it, all quote-tweeting that video. So they're not just reacting in a vacuum, they're reacting to that video. You can't react to that video and say, here's how you should react to Andrew Luck retiring if you're a Colts fan. Here's how you should react to this. You can't tell them how to react in that moment. You can't do it. And, but they're not only telling you, here's how you should react. They're saying that if you booed, they're trying to tell you that if you booed Andrew Luck on Saturday night, that you have brain issues and that you should go seek help. I'll read the tweets in a minute. It's, it's, it's stupid. 
it's um it's the stuff really of low IQ, I think. And it's not being able to relate to fans. And if you're a pro athlete or a former pro athlete, they will say that fans can't relate to the players and you don't understand. Well, there's a lot of players, what I learned today is that there's a lot of players, current and former, former that, that they don't understand the fans and they never will. And that's a problem. But I think the problem speaks to a larger issue. I do. I think all this stuff that we're seeing with Andrew Luck, people getting mad at the fans that booed him on Saturday night, I think it speaks to a larger issue. And that larger issue is the outrage culture that we live in. And this situation on Saturday night, Sunday, people attacking Colts fans for booing, to me is like the closest closest I've felt to being involved in like a political debate in like in sports, like taking political extreme thoughts and bringing it into the pro sports world when it comes to opinions. It's the closest I've felt we've got to that point. What do I mean by that? I mean, there's a reason why I don't do politics on this show or on any show that I do on any platform because it's ridiculous. It's so extreme on each side that nobody can understand both sides. Nobody can. And if they did, they wouldn't admit it. Right? These extreme, irrational views based on one thing that you believe, where if the other side doesn't believe it, not only are they wrong and you disagree with their opinion, but there's something wrong with them. They need help. These are people that tried to control how you make decisions and how you react to emotional moments. I see that in the political landscape all the time and I don't get involved in it because it'll drive you insane. It drives me insane just reading people retweet stuff on Twitter. Holy shit. But this Andrew Luck situation is the closest that I've come to feeling the way I feel about political talk. Whereas I see all these people tweeting about how Indianapolis Colts fans, well, they, you know, they got, what's wrong with your brain? You need help. How could you boo this man? Like, it, it's it's outrageous, but it's the outrage culture that we live in. The world of outrage. You're gonna boo Andrew Luck? How dare you? You're an idiot. Go get help. That's what it, that's what it is. That's what we saw on Twitter today. That's what we saw. So fans are booing Andrew Luck. I I mean I think from the get go, whoever's whoever's idea it was for Luck to go out on the sideline. Or whoever leaked this at that like before this game was over, they handled it the wrong way. They butchered it. Honestly, what did you think was gonna happen if you're the Colts or you're someone in Lux? If you're Andrew Luck, honestly, you think you're gonna get a standing ovation in that moment? Like I just and these athletes that are coming out arguing against it, and and you know what? Maybe there was one tweet that set a lot of people off. And that one tweet was from Doug Gottlieb. Um, this was a stupid tweet. And I don't agree with it. I don't. It was a stupid tweet. He tweets, quote, retiring because rehabbing is too hard is the most millennial thing ever. Hashtag Andrew Luck. He said, retiring because rehabbing is too hard is the most millennial thing ever. You know, one thing I will say about what 
the outrage culture has turned this into as they go after Indianapolis Colts fans or anybody like myself who defends those Colts fans for booing. Uh, the, you know, one other issue is that I think we've, the outrage has turned this into not just the guy who's up, who's frustrated with rehabbing, but also a guy, they've turned this into like some real serious, like illness or something like, oh, Andrew Luck. Like you would think that they're defending him so much with this one situation, people booing, you would think Andrew Luck like is on his deathbed or was just diagnosed with some serious illness or something. And obviously I hope that's not the case. And I hope that's not news that we, we find out about. Um, but you would think that's what happened based on the outrage that you see with these boos. And I don't know, maybe the outrage is stemming from this stupid Doug Gottlieb tweet, but I don't agree with Doug Gottlieb. Like, I mean, because I, I'm, I'm not sitting here today going, oh, Andrew Luck, I'm not knocking him for retiring. You can call a quits whenever you want. That's your right. You can call a quits whenever you want. My point is that in this unique situation, in that moment on Saturday night, with a guy like that, for fans who are that passionate and love him and love that team and have high expectations and high hopes for their team this season, a new season that's about to begin, in that moment, when they find out this guy's just calling a quits on him, I don't know how you could expect them in that moment to react in a positive manner. Like, it's insane if you think they're going to react, that everybody in that building is going to be like, no, you you know what? Good for you. Good for you. I'm wearing your jersey. I know. I I thought we were going to go to the Super Bowl this year, but you know what? This is all about you. This isn't about us. It's about you. We're happy for you. And any decision you make is good with us. Let me go buy a... Now the Bud Light for ten seventy five. Like no, I'm not surprised they booed. I almost I almost expected the boos to be louder. I'm not crushing the fans today. I'm defending them. I'm defending them. That is a passionate moment for a passionate fan base. For a situation that is shocking. This was a shocking situation. So if you're going to come out on Twitter, whether you're a media member or you're a former athlete or a current pro athlete, and like you're going to just start crushing those fans, dude, you're the one that doesn't get it. You're the one that doesn't get it, okay? Like, you you don't get it. You're the one that doesn't get it. Don't give me the... The Doug Gottlieb tweet was stupid. Don't put that Doug Gottlieb tweet in the same conversation as those fans booing in that unique moment on Saturday night because it's completely different. Those fans weren't sitting there going, oh, rehabbing's too hard. You're a millennial. Like, we don't care about your health. They weren't doing that. They were reacting to the idea that their hopes and dreams for this season that was just about to begin with high expectations, they were reacting to those hopes and dreams being flushed down the drain in front of their very eyes on their phones. They're talking to everyone in the building. Like, what? Andrew Lex retiring? What? Imagine being in the building. Like someone behind you goes, guys, I'm on Twitter. Chef is tweeting that Andrew Luck's retiring. Isn't that him right there? Laughing with Jacoby Brissett? What the fuck's going on? Like, this is the stuff that's probably happening in the stands. 
And all these people get Andrew Luck jerseys on that cost them $125. But I should listen to I should listen to Martellus Bennett on his beautiful boat try to tell us that this is how fans should react, right? Or I should take Taylor Twellman's advice on Twitter that, you know, if you're a fan booing Andrew Luck in that moment, you, sh- you there's something wrong with your brain. You should go get help. Right? Say Rich Eisen tweeting too. Oh, there's something, you know, you should go, you know, get some help. If you booed Andrew Luck in that moment. Shut the fuck up. I'm not sure how you can sit here today and crush Dave Dombrowski. If you're a Red Sox fan, like, I'm just not sure how you can do it. And what's your reasoning for crushing Dombrowski today? What is it? Is it he gave too much money to, he signed Chris Sale to a a contract that was too large, and obviously now he's got some health issues with that arm? Is that it? Is it you gave too much money to Nathan Avaldi? The guy who helped you, two guys that helped you win a World Series? Is that it? How many, are you still hung up on the David Price contract? Is that it? What, you don't like Xander Bogart's contract? Is that it? What is it? Like, because Dave Dombrowski, let's not sound like complete, complete spoiled assholes in this town. I just went on that don't be spoiled rant. Dave Dombrowski put together a World Series champion. And not only a World Series champion, he put together one of the most dominant teams in Major League Baseball history. He signed David Price. He traded for Chris Sale. He went out and traded for Nathan Avaldi. He brought in, you know, your guy last year, Craig Kimbrell, right? Kimbrell was a Dombrowski signing. I think he might have been his first. Um, I think he might have been his first. That was a trade, right? That was a trade. Uh, you know, Dombr- look, the, the, my point is Dombrowski made major moves to get big-name impact players into the Red Sox organization that resulted in division championship after division championship and ultimately a World Series with one of the more dominant teams, one of the most dominant teams in the history of the league. That was Dombrowski's creation. We're not even a full calendar year removed from that World Series championship. And you got people who are upset with Dave Dombrowski. If you're upset with Dave Dombrowski, you sound like a spoiled asshole. I think you need to reevaluate everything about where we should be as sports fans. Like, this is a guy that won you a championship, that won the Red Sox a championship. We're going to sit here and be upset with that? I got a problem with it. Now, like I said, Dombrowski had one year left on his deal. One year left on his deal. We heard rumors that this, you know, there was maybe some, there was some issues with Dombrowski and ownership. You could talk about the money that he gave some guys. But I mean, ownership, they could put their foot down. And maybe this was, you know, maybe this is Dombrowski going all Bill Parcells. Like if I had to put my finger on what happened, I would say that maybe the Red Sox did step in and go, nah, you know, the money that we've been spending, like we got to take it easy, like. I don't know, maybe Dombrowski wanted to give Moogie Betts a huge contract and maybe the Red Sox were not willing to do it. And I'm just throwing shit against the wall right now. But you're trying to understand why this didn't work out. Why Dombrowski and Red Sox ownership were button heads. Like, why they were not getting along. And the only thing I can think of is that Dombrowski is pulling a Parcells where he's like, hey, you want me to cook the dinner? 
and then you're going to have to let me shop for some of the groceries and sign some. Or maybe ownership wanted to sign Mookie Betts, and Dombrowski's like, ah, I'm going to put him on the trade block. I don't know. But there was something that happened with the with the philosophy, with Dombrowski's philosophy and what ownership wanted to do. There was a disagreement there. And usually when there's a disagreement like that, if if both sides are sticking to 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 their beliefs, and you're someone like Dombrowski who obviously will have an ego about it because he just won the team a championship. And he's going to be like, what? This is what I did for you with this team the last couple of years. That's not enough. Division titles, World Series championship. That's not enough for you guys. You, you don't have confidence in me. I mean, so it, it kind of feels like the timing of it, like something happened. There was a disagreement, led to an argument, led to, you know, another loss to the Yankees. And Dombrowski's like, you know what? What are we doing? What are we doing? Eight games out, this thing's over. You want me to just hang around the offices and not talk to you guys and hate your guts? Let's just do it. Let's just end this right now. It kind of feels like Dombrowski was is going parcels here, right? You want me to cook the dinner? Let me let me shop for the groceries. All of them. Don't don't get don't step in here. Let me do this. Maybe ownership stepped in on something. What did they step in on? I don't know. But obviously, Dombrowski didn't like it to the point where he knew he was gone. It's kind of I, I get the feeling that he wanted out, and I get the feeling that ownership is like, all right, see ya. So I think it's a. I don't think it's Dombrowski and another loss to the Yankees, and ownership's like, ah, we're gonna step into the office. You're fired. I don't like. I think th- this kind of feels like mutual to me. Feels mutual. Now. Alex Cora sounds like he was caught off guard. I don't know. The Cora after the game, here's what Cora said, quote, after the game last night, after a loss to the Yankees, after Dombrowski was fired. Officially, Cora says, quote, I just found out. So surprise and shock, obviously. Right now, I don't have too much to say. We'll talk a little bit more tomorrow. This is the guy that gave me a chance to come here and be a big league manager. It's one of those that caught me. They just told me, so I'm not ready to talk about it. End quote. That's Alex Cora. The Red Sox this morning, on this Monday morning, they will not hold the press conference, reportedly. But they have released statements. And here's a statement from the Red Sox. Here's the quote from John Henry. Quote, Four years ago, we were faced with a critical decision about the direction of the franchise. We were extraordinarily fortunate to be able to bring Dave in to lead baseball operations. With a World Series championship and three consecutive American League East titles, he has cemented what was already a Hall of Fame career. End quote. Again, that was John Henry. Tom Werner says, quote, Dave will hold the special place in franchise history as a key architect of one of the greatest Red Sox teams ever assembled. His willingness to make bold moves helped deliver our fourth World Series championship in the 21st century. End quote. Then you got President Sam Kennedy. Says, quote, Dave and I enjoyed a tremendous partnership these past four seasons. His baseball acumen and relentless pursuit of winning produced a season that will long be remembered by all of us. End quote. The statement continues, a search for the next baseball operations leader will begin immediately during this process. 
The baseball operations department will be led by assistant GM Brian O'Halloran, Eddie Romero, and Zach Scott. There will be no formal media availability regarding today's announcement. The Red Sox will have regular media access prior to tonight's game. So, there you have it. Those are the quotes. I mean, the Red Sox publicly are not knocking the guy. Now, it'll be interesting to see what Dombrowski has to say about it. Yeah, I think that's the next piece here. But then, of course, you'll get the leaks. It'll leak. You know, it'll leak. Red Sox will leak it to the newspaper, the Globe. They'll have, there'll be a story in the Globe, what happened. And uh, will it be true? Will it be, you know, one side trying to make, will it be the Red Sox trying to make themselves look good? What will be the truth? Dombrowski will then get his side out there. I think if you're asking me to judge what happened, you know, the timing is strange, knowing that they could have just played the season out again. He had another year in his contract. But at the same time, we did hear that there was some issues with Dombrowski and ownership. So you got to get to those issues. Like, what were the issues that made them do this last night? Was ownership so fired up? That was, was President Sam Kennedy so fired up that he stormed in a, you know, another loss to the Yankees? He storms in. Now, this season's been over. We've known this season was over. Were they really that upset with what happened at the trade deadline, not getting an extra bullpen guy? That they decided, well, on Sunday night, September 8th, early Monday, September 9th, we're going to fire Dave Dombrowski. I just think something happened. This just feels like Dombrowski was like, guys, we know it's over, right? You disagree with a move that I want to make. We disagree on some things. It's affected the relationship. We're eight games out. Clearly, I'm not happy. I'm just not happy where I'm at right now. You know, I, I, don't, I don't feel like you guys got my back on some things that I've done or want to do. And we, we both know we're not going to... We both know that this is it after this season. And so since the season's officially over, looking at the wildcard standings, eight games out, why are we doing this? Let's just cut ties right now. Well, Antonio Brown right now is now a New England Patriot. On Saturday, just hours after being cut and released by the Oakland Raiders, Antonio Brown, like I was on Twitter, and it's almost, it's the most, this story, Antonio Brown ending up with the Patriots on a one-year $15 million deal with $10 million guaranteed. Seeing that tweet pop up from Adam Schefter, Ian Rappaport, a couple other NFL insiders, seeing the tweet pop up on Saturday afternoon that says, Antonio Brown has agreed to a deal with the New England Patriots. It's the most unbelievable, believable story and result to a player's future that I've ever seen in the history of sports. Let me say that again. It's the most unbelievable, believable story. Antonio Brown ending up with the New England Patriots on a one-year deal. And I say it's the most unbelievable, believable story because we know the history that the Patriots have with bringing in these players that are superstars, that are big names, that had some issues with their previous team. And, and all of a sudden, they come to New England and they buy into the Patriot way and... You know, they helped the Patriots get to the Super Bowl. 
No, I, I can't say help the Patriots win a Super Bowl because Randy Moss never won a Super Bowl. It's unfortunate. I don't use that to knock Randy Moss. I am one of Randy Moss's biggest fans. And Randy Moss, you know, people will... The comparison to the Randy Moss thing is real. It's real in the sense that Randy Moss was a selfish player. He was. He was a selfish player. Did he want to win? Yeah, he wanted to win. He wanted to win. That was part of it. But let's not forget how he ran himself out of New England. I don't. You shouldn't forget about that. He gets up at a press conference after a win. Was it week one? A win over Cincinnati? I was covering the team at the time. Randy Moss gets up for a press conference, and he's talking about his contract. And it's like... Well, there you go. Next thing you know, Randy Moss shipped out of town. Randy Moss regretted it after, right? Because <laughs> he went to, where'd he go? Tennessee, and then Minnesota again. And he regretted it in a press conference as the Patriots beat the Vikings. Randy Moss was then in the Vikings. Patriots beat the Vikings at Gillette. I was covering the Randy Moss, that Randy Moss press conference too, where he's in the visiting press con- the visiting team's press conference, and he's just, He's wearing a Red Sox hat while he's a member of the Vikings. He's knocking his own coach. I think it was Brad Childress at the time. And he's praising, throwing bouquets at the Patriots and basically showing the ultimate regret for getting selfish with the contract and forcing his way out of New England. So you can relate all of this, you know, the selfishness that Antonio Brown has been showing. You can relate that to Randy Moss's selfishness. You can. Where I, where I don't think you can relate the two is, you know, people want to go to the talent. I know, Antonio Brown's a great receiver. I just, I'm not putting him in the same category as Randy Moss, though. I, I just, I, I have a, t- Randy Moss to me was like, everything seemed like it was with ease. He was, um, you know, puts the hand. I, it, I just still feel like there's a difference in talent from the two. It's not a huge difference. There's still a difference. I still don't think Antonio Brown's on Randy Moss's level. I don't. Talent-wise. Is it is it close? It's closer than a lot of other receivers in the league. Sure. But Randy Moss was a, was a special type of receiver. And I think I am very hesitant to put guys in Randy Moss's category. I don't know that I'm going there with Antonio Brown. He's a, Antonio Brown's a great receiver. Is he in, is he on Randy Moss's level? Uh, I don't know. Go if you think he is, go back and watch Randy Moss highlights. Refresh your Randy Moss memory for me, please. Just for just for a few minutes. Um, but the selfishness aspect, you know, it's similar. We know the story and the history with the Patriots and bringing these guys in and turning them around and turning them into unselfish guys, even if it's just for a year or two before they eventually get selfish again, and and and, and using it to their advantage as a team as well. They're doing this with Antonio Brown, and when the tweets rolled out on Saturday, it's the most unbelievable, believable thing. It's believable because of the history the Patriots have with bringing in these types of players. It's un- unbelievable because Antonio Brown seemed like a different type of selfish over the weekend. Over Just over the weekend. Like on Thursday night, Friday night. He seemed like a different type of selfish. He seemed like a different type of asshole. Didn't he? I was calling him an asshole on Twitter. Throughout all the Oakland Raiders stuff. He just seemed like a dip, different type of asshole to the point where I tweeted out, Patriots, please do not do this. 
as it looked like the Raiders were about to release him, and then they didn't release him, and I tweeted, Patriots, please do not do this. What did the Patriots do? They did it. They signed Antonio Brown, and it, it was like they wasted no time. Antonio Brown's agent, Drew Rosenhaus, Bill Belichick, they worked something out real quick. When you're putting an intelligent person like Matthew Slater, a captain and a leader like Matthew Slater in position to have no choice but to give an answer that sounds ridiculous, that's on the organization. The organization put Matthew Slater in a spot where he had to say this yesterday. Here's Slater standing in front of the media. It was just before practice or after practice. It doesn't matter. It was in front of his locker, in the locker room, the Patriots locker room. He's got his hands behind his back. He's got his head down. He's trying so hard to say the right things here. He's rehearsed it. He's practiced it. He, he knows what to say. But yet, even still, it sounds ridiculous. Here is Matthew Slater being put in position to answer the tough questions on rape accusations on Antonio Brown, a guy he probably hasn't even talked to yet. And he has to answer questions on this. Here's Matthew Slater. First, I'll say certainly don't want to minimize the seriousness of a situation like this. Uh, Very sensitive matter. um, And don't want to minimize it at all. Um, But that being said, um, I certainly don't think that uh, I should be speaking on it or uh, I'm qualified to speak on it because... I don't have any knowledge of the situation. So I think, you know, as a leader of this team, uh, standing before you guys, speaking on behalf of the team, uh, and not necessarily on behalf of myself, I think that, you know, it's important that we try to focus on doing our job as professionals this week and uh, trying to go about uh, preparation and being ready to play a game on Sunday. Um, but certainly I'm sensitive to uh, this situation and, you know, what's, uh, I guess what is, um, out there. All right. So there's Matthew Slater. I, I mean, that quote just coming from anybody just is, is ridiculous. It's just a ridiculous quote, but it's gotta be said. Ridiculous things now have to be said. Unnecessary questions now have to be answered. Where the Patriots are like, well, it's the Patriot way. Yeah, we take rape seriously, but uh, we also know we got a football game in a couple days. <laughs> like, well, I, do you get what I'm saying? Like, that just doesn't go in the same sentence. It shouldn't ever have to go in the same sentence. Certainly not for this team. And I think... You know, so I'm watching this, and I'm watching it over and over again, and I'm going, wow, I feel bad for Matthew Slater. He's ha- he has to be put in positions to be asked. Like, if you told Matthew Slater two weeks ago that he'd have to stand in front of his locker and answer questions about Antonio Brown, his teammate Antonio Brown, possibly raping some girl in 2017 to 2018, if you told him he had to answer those questions, he'd go, get out of here. No, I don't. Yeah, I won't have to answer those questions. Antonio Brown's not even going to be my teammate. <laughs> like, here he is, though. Like, they are, in fairness to him, they are trying to just get ready for a game against Miami. But that's the problem here. It's awfully tough to do now that you brought in a guy that's being accused of rape. And that's why you got to ask the question, did the Patriots know about this? 
But not just Matthew Slater answering that question got me thinking, what are we doing here? What are the Patriots doing here? It's, it's the question that came right after that. The question that came right after that. Think about how ridiculous this question is that's then asked Antonio Brown. And I, I get it. These questions are going to be asked. I'm not even coming down hot on the person that asked it. It's just the fact that these have to be even asked in the Patriots locker room right now is insane. Here's this question right after Matthew Slater just finished. Do you have a responsibility to a teammate who's in distress? <laughs> like, Antonio, Matthew Slater probably doesn't even know Antonio Brown. Let me, one more time. Do you have a responsibility to a teammate who's in distress? Do you have a responsibility to a teammate who's in distress? Man, this is where we're at. This is where we're at. How do you answer that if you're Matthew Slater? I don't even, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't even want to know because it's probably cringeworthy. He probably said the right thing based on the situation, but it's still even the right thing that's being said is cringeworthy. Because this is all just so fucking awkward. And that's this is the moment where I'm going, what are we doing here? What are we doing? What are we doing? And maybe Antonio Brown didn't do any of this. It's possible. It's possible this is a money grab. But at the same time, it's possible that he did do it. How, how do I know? You're going to feed me a video where he's laying in bed and his undies next to this girl? She was his personal trainer. I'm sure they had a lot of moments where he's laying around in his underwear near her. I have no idea if he forcefully bent her over his bed while she's saying no. I couldn't tell you if that happened. She says it happened. He says it didn't. He said, show, we see videos and text messages. He says they had a consensual relationship. I have no idea. It's he said, she said. There's videos, pictures, anonymous people on Twitter. We're never going to find out. What I do know is the Patriots now have this elephant in the room and this circus down at Gillette Stadium where they are really just trying to get ready for a game against Miami. But they have to answer questions about rape accusations about a guy, for a guy they don't even know. It's really an awkward story to cover from my perspective. And I went on my rant on Thursday last week. Go back and listen to that if you want. It's also on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Danny Picard. But there's a perfect tweet that was thrown out yesterday that I thought, I honestly thought was perfect. And it's coming from Nora Princiotti of the Boston Globe. She covers the Patriots of the Globe. She tweets out during the game. The Dolphins don't quite know how to cover Antonio Brown. I can relate. End quote. The Dolphins don't quite know how to cover Antonio Brown. They don't know how to cover him. I can relate. End quote. That's the tweet. It's perfect. Because I'm having a tough time with this one too. I'm not going to lie to you. I am. And I've had some people try to tell me, this is all going to, you know, this is, it's all dying down. It's going to go away. I don't know. Is it going to go away? Is it? You honestly believe this is just going away? Now, The latest on the actual investigation, from a league standpoint, is that the NFL investigating this right now. They are going to meet with Antonio Brown's accuser, Brittany Taylor. They're going to meet with her today on this Monday, September 16th. But according to Ian Rappaport of NFL Network, they're also going to meet 
with another football player who was, according to the accusation, there was another football player in Antonio Brown's house when one of the incidents went down. And then a later report came out and said that this other football player was Antonio Brown's cousin, Baltimore Ravens rookie Marquise Brown. So Marquise Brown is going to also talk to the NFL as well as part of this investigation. So there's still some things that we need to learn. I don't, we're never going to, we're probably never going to learn. We're probably never going to know whether or not Antonio Brown actually raped this girl. Right? We're never going to find out. We're never going to know. We're never going to know the truth. But the reason I'm having a tough time with it is, is fairly simple. And I can only speak for myself. But for the last year, with all the news that has surrounded Antonio Brown, for the last year, maybe even longer than that, I have been sitting here on this platform, on this show, crushing Antonio Brown. For the last year, I've been crushing him. I've been criticizing him nonstop for looking like and sounding like a crazy asshole. Right? Like, just a, just a crazy asshole. I've been crushing him for that. So for the last year, I've been crushing this guy for being a crazy asshole. All of a sudden, he comes to the Patriots, gets accused of rape, and I'm supposed to sit here and go, no, he would, what? He would never do that. <laughs> what are you talking about? He would never, come on, he would never do that. It's a money grab. I don't know. I just have a tough time going from criticizing this guy for being a crazy asshole for the last year to just sitting there telling you that he would never do this. I have no idea. Maybe, it is, like I told you last week, it, it very well could be a money grab. At the same time, I don't know how you could sit there and go, oh, he'd never do it. Just because it's a, just because it's a civil case? Right now, it is. Who knows where this goes? Who knows? And, for, you know, the reports are that the two sides now have been talking about this for months. For months, they've been talking about this. Antonio Brown's team representatives and this girl's lawyers, Brittany Taylor's lawyers, they've been trying to come up with an agreement and they haven't been able to do it. So then the next question is, the question we asked last week, and I told you why it was an important question, because the question is, did the Patriots know about it before signing Antonio Brown? According to Ian Rappaport in this story that he sent out yesterday before the game, Patriots owner Robert Kraft According to sources close to Kraft, Patriots owner Robert Kraft would not have signed off on the Antonio Brown signing had he known about the rape accusation. Which I still don't know if I can believe that because then it's like, well, what made you, what made you keep him then? Like if you didn't know about it, what made what made you keep him? If 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 having known about it would have prevented you from signing Antonio Brown. How come when you find out about it, you say, eh, not only are, you gonna, are we going to keep him, we're going to give him eight targets right off the bat in his first game just a couple days later. So I don't even know if I believe that. Um, I don't know what to believe. That's the problem here. That's why, we're, that's why I'm having a tough time. That's why the tweet from Noah Princiati of the Boston Globe yesterday was perfect. The Dolphins don't quite know how to cover Antonio Brown. I can relate. Basically, she covers the Patriots. She doesn't quite know how to cover Antonio Brown as a reporter. And as somebody who 
in my position, is supposed to come on this show and give you my analysis, my reaction, my thoughts. I'm having a tough time knowing how to cover the Patriots right now, knowing how to cover Antonio Brown. Because all I can think about as the Patriots sit there and go, as Bill Belichick stands there late last week and is asked about Antonio Brown and is asked about whether or not Antonio Brown will play against Miami and he stands there and goes, we're going to do what's best for the team. You know, as all these guys praise Antonio Brown, as he stays at Tom Brady's house, as he works out at Tom Brady's facility, as the Patriots embrace Antonio Brown as much as they've ever embraced anybody in the history of the organization. All I can sit back and think about is, well, what happens if there's some piece of evidence that this girl has that she hold, she's holding on to that, that shows up at some point that maybe gets people thinking, eh, maybe Antonio Brown did do that. Maybe he did rape her. How bad is that going to look for the Patriots? How embarrassing of a look is that going to be for everybody? And I know you could say, well, that just goes to show you he didn't do it. And they know he didn't do it. Because if they knew he didn't do it, they would never be embracing him like this. I, I don't know. Well, they might believe he didn't do it. But that gets into the whole, what makes me believe Antonio Brown didn't do it? Like, I, I don't understand that... You don't have to come out and say he did it. Because it very well could be a money grab. But I think there, there needs to be a middle ground here with the Antonio Brown stuff. Because I'm hearing a lot of people, especially come at me when I talk to people. And they're going, oh, he, he didn't do that. He didn't do that. Well, what do you mean? What, how do you know? Have you ever been in the same room as Antonio Brown? You know, all we can do is judge it based on what the guy's personality is. And again, I've spent the last year crushing this guy's personality. I spent the last month crushing his personality just based on what I saw on Hard Knocks on HBO. That guy's a weirdo. You know, you got other stories coming out in which his stepfather... His stepfather, he's basically said he wouldn't be surprised if Antonio Brown did it because he's been somebody that always gets what he wants his whole life. And he's been abusive to women in the past. Now, you can take that for what it's worth. Who knows what the situation is there, right? Yeah, you got to question that. You got to question that report coming out because maybe this, his stepfather, maybe Antonio Brown wouldn't give his stepfather money. And that's a money grab, too. He wants money to shut up and not spread, not talk to the New, to the New York media or any media, right? He wants money. To, he could want money to shut up. He could. So, I, but again, we. From my seat, the seat that I'm sitting in, from my perspective, and even from that tweet, someone who covers the team, Nora Princiata of the Boston Globe, and any Patriots reporter, I don't know. I did, this is this is an awkward. We're in an awkward spot because I don't. Maybe he did do it. Like, should I? Like, if I was a a reporter, Antonio Brown. You know, t- first of all, take the. Let's take the rape accusation out of it for a second. Let's take it out of the let's take it out of the equation. Let's just forget about it for a second. Antonio Brown, superstar receiver, got, you know, worked his way out of Oak, worked his way out of Pittsburgh, then worked his way out of Oakland, came to an agreement with the Patriots. Seemed a little crazy because of the helmet situation. 
There were questions about his feet after being frostbitten. Right? Frostbitten feet. Gets into it with Mike Mayock of the Raiders. Crazy on social media. Celebrates losing out on $30 million. Superstar receiver comes to the Patriots. Patriots go to him early and often. Beautiful touchdown pass. Back shoulder, left corner of the end zone. Eight targets. Antonio smiling. Patriots score 43. They shut out the Dolphins. Can you believe it? The Patriots have Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown talks to the media. If there's no rape accusation. The story is Antonio Brown on the field. His connection with Tom Brady. You know, it's looking like when Randy Moss came to the Patriots. Get that big name receiver in the fold. Didn't work out with other teams, but it's going to work here. Oh, it's going to work here. Antonio Brown put the Patriots in the Super Bowl. There's no way they're losing now. You know, without the rape accusation, it's everybody. There's no other story here. That's it. It's Antonio Brown. Can you do that today? You can't. You can't. There's something preventing us from doing that. I, uh, maybe I should just speak for myself. There's something preventing me from doing that. And and that one thing that's preventing me from doing that is that there's a rape accusation hanging over this guy's head. And you can yell and scream about it being a civil suit, a civil case. I've, I just... The, the last thing I want to do is sit here and go, he would never do that. And then this girl, Brittany Taylor, meets with Roger Goodell and she's got some fucking video or audio clip of the guy. Like, I mean, I have no idea. I read a t- that text message from Antonio Brown. He's upset with the whole thing. But he also, it's also a very tough text to read at the same time. Not only for some of the words he's using and the way, you know, he's just attacking this girl, but also just how how dumb he seems, right? Like, so there's a lot going on here. And there's so much going on that we don't know, that we'll never know, that I'm just having a tough time. Like the Dolphins and like Noah Princiati, the Boston Globe tweeted out yesterday, I don't quite know how to cover Antonio Brown. I don't. I don't. I don't want to sit here and try to get in the guy's head, but I do have to react to the Patriots releasing him. Because it, there was a weird reaction to this. There was a weird reaction to this. And the reaction that I saw on social media, and maybe this was just a social media reaction, and maybe I'm giving social media too much credit, but you had a bunch of people blaming the media for running Antonio Brown out of town. Saying the media built this thing up to be something that it wasn't. These are just accusations. It's only a civil case. You know, um, I don't even know this stuff happened. If it happened, it's exaggerated because the media just is attacking Antonio Brown, especially the Boston media. That's what they do. They go after the Patriots. People are blaming the media for running Antonio Brown out of town. And I will tell you this. As somebody who has been covering the Antonio Brown story, drama, going back to his final days in Pittsburgh, going back to his final days in Pittsburgh, in which I've been on this show calling him a crazy asshole back to those days. I, I, I'm telling you right now, the people who are saying that 
the media ran Antonio Brown out of town. This is probably the dumbest take I have heard on anything in a long time. That 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 we should be blaming the media. And I don't know, do you put me in that or, or what? I, I've told you, I've wondered, should the Patriots release Antonio Brown? Since the day that those rape accusations came out, there's video on YouTube, I, I posted the clip, I've done it on this show, I've gone on rants, I've tweeted about it, I brought up the question since that day. And it feels like two months ago, doesn't it? It was like 12 days ago. <laughs> 10 days ago or something. What was he, 10, he spent 10 days with the Patriots. 10 days. And enough with... And can we can we stop like during the broadcast? The broadcast yesterday, Patriots Jets. I couldn't tell you how many times in the first half of that game they they said, and now the Patriots are without Antonio Brown. And now they're without Antonio Brown. So so la la la. Like and then they would go on, but they would they would just make the statement, and now the Patriots are without Antonio Brown. When referencing the Patriots' wide receiver depth, the depth with the offense, can we stop it with that? Enough! Why? Like that—that's—that's that's ridiculous. Antonio Brown spent ten days with the Patriots. Antonio Brown played one game against the Dolphins team that isn't going to win a game this year. Okay, Antonio Brown. I tweeted this yesterday. Antonio Brown had as much impact on the Patriots franchise as Reggie Wayne and Eric Decker, two wide receivers who showed up at training camp and then did nothing for this organization. Antonio Brown, I know you could say, well, he caught a couple passes in a game against Miami. Might as well have been a preseason game. Might as well have been no game at all. Antonio Brown had as much impact on the Patriots franchise as Reggie Wayne and Eric Decker. And you know how much of an impact that is? None whatsoever. Zero, zip, nada. No impact. Antonio Brown had no impact on the franchise, on the Patriots franchise. And should I say, let me, let me get more specific. The success of the Patriots franchise. So stop it with the, oh, now the Patriots are without Antonio Brown. So they're going to have to, no, they're not going to have to do anything. They're going to have to do the same thing they were doing before Antonio Brown got here. And what did they do before Antonio Brown got here? They beat the Steelers 33-3. to They whooped them in week one. Okay? Nothing changed on the defense. The defense is still dominant. Right? The, the Patriots are still a dominant team. They were a dominant team, a dominant franchise, a championship franchise organization before Antonio Brown got here. And they still are now that Antonio Brown's gone. So can we stop it with the, and now the Patriots are without Antonio Brown, so they're going to have to find a way to... No, stop, enough. Antonio Brown, the impact he had on this organization, zero, not a zip, none, no impact. The same impact as Reggie Wayne, Eric Decker, and anybody else that's walked into this organization and, and, and has had no impact. But I guess I maybe there's part of me that understands because the 10 days did feel like two months. And it felt like two months because we were talking about Antonio Brown every day. And that's where you get the people that will say, well, it's the media. It's the media. Uh, that's the dumbest take I've heard in a long time. The dumbest take. People say, oh, no one's talking about Antonio Brown. He's with Oakland. What are you talking about? It was on HBO. 
Antonio Brown literally was showing himself as a crazy asshole on HBO. HBO hard knocks. What do you mean no one's talking about it? He put it on full display for the world to see. It's incredible. It's incredible. This guy is a crazy asshole. He's selfish. He's narcissistic. He is somebody that has always got what he wanted in life. I mean, we heard that quote from his stepdad last week where he's like, Antonio always gets what he wants. And there's a common theme with the Antonio Brown stuff. The selfishness. Um, the guy who gets what he wants all the time. He gets what he wants. And w- when he gets what he wants, when it comes time to pay his dues, he cuts people out of his life and he starts blaming on other people. And, you know, oh, you know, he, he, it's all about him. It's, it's always been about him. I was listening to Ryan Clark tell a story on ESPN the other day, former teammate of Antonio Brown's with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And he said, you know, Antonio Brown, when his first couple years, um, you know, he was, you know, you didn't really see this, but then as, as he became a star player, he got more money. You saw him treat people differently. And, and you kind of saw the true Antonio Brown come out, treating people poorly, the theme with that Sports Illustrated story last week. Like, there's no, there's nobody that knows Antonio Brown that has denied any of that. That has denied that there's nobody that knows Antonio Brown that's come out and gone, oh, I know Antonio. Like, he would never do any of that stuff. Not, there's nothing even close to that. In fact, it's the opposite. It's more people coming out going, yeah, you know what? That, they actually, that Sports Illustrated story last week kind of, painted the the actual picture of Antonio Brown to a T. And the common theme is that he's he's selfish, narcissistic, and is just crazy. He's an asshole. ESPN tweeted out, quote, Sources, Kraft, Bill, Loom Lodge, and Brady decision. End quote. Kraft, Bill Belichick, Loom Lodge in Tom Brady's decision on what he's going to do next season. That's the headline of this on Twitter. And I responded to it in all caps. No shit. Like, so Adam Schefter has this story, comes out with this story. And basically he's got sources that Adam Schefter had sources telling him that he needs to take it easy with the Tom Brady talk. This is what I get out of this. That he had sources come to him and go, you're making a really big deal out of this. And it's not that big of a deal. Well, yeah, all options might be on the table for Tom Brady. Considering the factors that you continue to mention, which is he sold his home, his trainer sold his home, he voided the last two years of his contract. Okay. Like, yeah, technically right now, if the season ended today, Tom Brady would be a free agent in the offseason. Tom Brady is scheduled to be a free agent this coming offseason. Yeah, all those factors, Adam Schefter, that you keep pointing out, I guess all options are open because of that, right? But you need to pump the brakes on this theory that you keep throwing out that you think Tom Brady is going to play for another team next year. Because you have to factor in that Tom Brady is not an idiot. 
that Tom Brady does, in fact, watch the rest of the NFL. Tom Brady understands that right now he is functioning at a high level, not just because of how good he is, but also because of how good his coach is, but also because of how good his owner is. And just the the type of mindset that this organization has created, the Patriot way, yeah, the players don't ever come out and use that term, but the definition of it is a real thing. Okay? It's a real thing. And it's just an atmosphere and a culture that exists that does not exist in any other organization in the league. And Tom Brady knows that. So all the things that you say, Adam, about what you think Tom Brady could do this offseason, yeah, I guess all options are open, but don't dismiss the fact that because of what Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft had built in this organization and because of how bad the rest of the league is, that's going to be a pretty large factor in Tom Brady's decision for what he's going to do next year. Don't, don't dismiss that. That's basically what Adam Schefter was told by this source. But yet Adam Schefter comes up with this story, reports it as such, but then continues to go, but the source also told me all options are open. <laughs> and, and so Adam Schefter now and ESPN, they, wa- they are showing their hand, right? couple things. One, they think Tom Brady is dumb. They think he doesn't watch the rest of the league. They think he doesn't understand just how stupid the rest of the league is. They think he doesn't understand the dumb decisions that many coaches and organizations make with regards to player personnel or even in-game decisions. Right? He, he, they think he doesn't get that. They think he doesn't see that. He doesn't know that. Only we know it at ESPN. Only we watch football on Sundays. Tom Brady? Nah, he's just focused, focused on his game. Like a news for you. By, by him being focused on his game, that means he game plans for his game. That means he watches other teams. <laughs> so Tom, my message to Adam Schiff at the ESPN and anybody that's sitting there today looking at a Patriots team that's 8-0 going, oh, we think Tom Brady can play for another team next season. My message to you is Tom Brady is not an idiot. Tom Brady is not dumb. He is not stupid. In fact... I seem to think he is one of the smartest guys in the league. And if he is that, one of the smartest guys in the league, if he is not stupid, if he is not dumb, if he's not an idiot and a moron, then that means Tom Brady understands just how good his organization is, how great his organization is compared to the rest of the league. And so certainly, no shit, that becomes a factor. (laughs) Like... So I asked the question to say, look, what are we doing here with the story? What are we doing? Like, what are we doing? I, I don't, I mean, I get it and I don't. It's clickbait. You need something to talk about. But like, move on. But the Adam Schefter story, let, let me just read you the, I'll read you the first couple sentences and then I'll, I'll get to the bottom of it. Um, Because the, the way it ends, Adam Schefter, like he wants this to end with controversy, with the question still hanging over his head. They want this. They want this. The story opens. The headline is, Sources on Brady's future with Patriots. Relationships with Kraft, Belichick, key draws. Again, no shit. First sentence. Quote, The mystery that will hang over the rest of this season 
extend into the offseason and become one of the most significant storylines in sports involves the future of New England Patriots quarterback Tom Brady. There are people in and around the Patriots organization who still cannot predict what Brady will do and where he will end up in 2020, but they recognize that all options are on the table, including returning to New England, moving on to another organization, or retiring. But what more than one source pointed out over the past week is that New England offers two advantages to Brady that no other situation can. Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick. I'm going to stop it. I'm stopping it there. That, that's what I'm reading from the story. I'm going to stop it there. And, and you get to that point and you're like, again, no shit. New England offers two advantages to Brady that no other situation can. Robert Kraft. And Bill Belichick. And this has been my main point over the last couple of weeks when I've crushed Adam Schefter for the way he's been floating out this theory and teasing this theory that Tom Brady's going to play for another team. Not retiring. Adam Schefter is implying that he's leaning towards Tom Brady joining another team next year. And one of my biggest issues with that has been the Patriots provide something that no other team can. And Adam Schefter basically was told that by, by a source. Somebody went to Adam Schefter and goes, listen, dude, easy. Take it easy. Easy. You're a Monday Night Football pregame. You're spewing nonsense. Easy, Adam Schefter. You're getting all a little too excited for something that's not real life. Easy. Um, so in this story, Adam Schefter, he continues with a quote from one of the sources. Quote, never underestimate Robert Kraft. One source familiar with the situation that awaits the Patriots and Brady told ESPN. That source mentioned another element to ESPN that some over time have questioned. Quote, I can tell you this. The working relationship with Tom and Bill Belichick right now is terrific, the source said. I'm stopping the, the story. I'm, I'm not reading anymore. I'm now giving you my opinion. But that, that quote from Adam Schiff's source says, quote, I can tell you this. The working relationship with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick right now is terrific, end quote. But yet there's other stories that were coming out yesterday that says that Tom Brady is upset with the way the Patriots have got rid of Josh, the way they handled Josh Gordon, the way they handled Antonio Brown. You know, people reporting that that Brady's upset. So what is it? Is Brady really upset? Again, how is he upset? With still having Julian Edelman, who's a Hall of Fame receiver, who's one of the best receivers in football. How's he upset that they just traded for Mohamed Sanu? I got a feeling that Brady's going to love Mohamed Sanu. Like, if you're Tom Brady, you're in this game yesterday. Again, Mohamed Sanu, two, two catches, two receptions, and the crowd starts chanting, Sanu! Like, how many other places do you get that? That's like a moment where you sit there, you got to laugh and go, wow. You know, we're... This is a special time in a special town in a special organization that's doing special things. You think Tom Brady's sitting there listening to that at Gillette Stadium yesterday going, I got to get the fuck out of here. (laughs) No, he's not. And people think that Tom Brady must be an idiot if they think that's what he's thinking. If they must think the complete opposite of what we know Tom Brady is, a competitor who wants to win. Every fabric of Tom Brady's football bean is that he wants to win. 
That's what we've learned from Tom Brady over the last 20 years. But yet, it seems that the people like Adam Schefter and others who report this stuff about the Patriots and Tom Brady, they can't process that thought. They can't use that when they come when they say anything about the Patriots or Tom Brady's future. It's like, okay, I'm hearing this, that, the other thing. Don't you think you should factor in logic? And if you factor in logic, you should factor in the Tom Brady. All he cares about is winning. But that's going to change now, I tell you. Because he just bought a house in Connecticut. He's going to commute from Connecticut to Chicago. Because Chicago's offense is struggling. And Brady's had enough of Belichick and Kraft. Well, Adam Schefter's coming up with a quote from a source that says, I can tell you this, the working relationship with Tom and Bill Belichick right now is terrific. Contradicts other reports that say he's unhappy with the way Belichick got rid of Josh Gordon and Antonio Brown. I am telling you right now, and I reacted to the Josh Gordon thing last week. I'm telling you right now, the Josh Gordon decision was something that had to do with, with, with preparation or game plan or something that was going on in practice. And I'm telling you that Belichick and Brady, I would almost guarantee that they were on the same page with how they felt about Josh Gordon. Not Josh Gordon as a person, but Josh Gordon as a football player and somebody that, you know, they gave a lot of chances to this kid. And it's like, okay, now it's your turn to become that dude, become that guy. Josh Gordon never became that guy. Is that Brady's fault? Is that Belichick's fault? Or is that Josh Gordon's fault? You know? Expectations are high here. You can't just show up and go through the motions. And if it wasn't working out, which obviously I'm going to assume it wasn't, I feel like Tom Brady was probably on the same page with Bill Belichick on that one. Um, but people want to come up with their controversies and their theories and, and, and say, oh, man, Belichick did something that we don't agree with. So, there's, so there, must be, there must be some type of rift at, in Foxborough. Instead of putting Seth Wickersham on it this time, we'll put Adam Schefter on it. People believe him. He reports the facts. Well, Adam Schefter, he, st- he goes on in this report that basically says, it basically says, everybody, take it easy. Tom Brady isn't, isn't running away from what he wants to do the most, which is win. He's not running away from that. <laughs> but yet Adam Schefter, at the bottom of this, here's the last line of the story. It's like, you write a story that basically throws water on all your theories and all your hot takes on Brady's future. And you end the story with this sentence. Quote, Other sources familiar with the situation insist Brady's decision can still go any which way and nobody can predict what will unfold after the season. End quote. (laughs) Keeping us hanging, right? There's a tease. Until next time. Until next Adam. Until the next Adam Schefter report on Tom Brady's future. Anything's possible. But I just always thought, well, you know, if anything else comes up with the Astros and, and... a report or an accusation that they're spying, people can always reference my story. They're not going to ignore my story. Well, boy, was I wrong about that. (laughs) Was I wrong about that. This week, a former Astros pitcher by the name of Mike Fiers told The Athletic, and this was Ken Rosenthal from The Athletic, right? He reported it. Former Astros pitcher Mike Fiers told The Athletic that the Astros in 2017 
used video cameras to steal signs when they were playing at home. And then they sent off signals in the ballpark. You know, were they smashing garbage barrels? Like right before the pitch? Uh, you know, you could, you could hear the noises. There's video of it. People breaking it down. And they used to give audio signals in the arena to send the signals that they were stealing with video cameras to the hitter right before the pitch. They were using video cameras to steal signals and then using audio within, you know, inside the arena to, to basically tip off the Astros hitter as to what was coming. And this is a former Astros player basically ratting everybody out. You know, I, I, what's the, what was the motive for that? I, I don't really know. Um, obviously, they screwed him somehow. Uh, but the, the, the point is, the Astros got caught again. The Houston Astros continue now to get caught spying. However, with all these reports, you know, I, I looked at it and went, well, no kidding. Like, we're making this a huge story now. It, this, is a, this has become a much bigger story now than it was when I broke it last year. During the playoffs, by the way. During a playoff game. Now, they had mentioned it during the game, and there were some reports after, and there, were, there was news that Major League Baseball was going to look into it, but it did kind of quickly get swept under the rug, didn't it? It did. It did. I'm not being, being biased. It got swept under the rug by all parties involved. I did think that it would come up again, and perhaps I do think, it's my own personal opinion, I can't say this with any factual information because I don't know Ken Rosenthal. I don't know really many people at The Athletic. I don't know Mike Fires of the Houston Astros. Um, I don't know any of the sources that Ken Rosendahl had, so I don't really say this for fact, but my opinion is that Ken Rosendahl, he, Ken Rosendahl did some digging on this because maybe there were some accusations that were out there, and also he probably remembered my report from last year and said, well, how come that got swept down to the rug? All that said, and now you get this big story and everybody's all over it, and yet as everybody's all over it, my report from last year, which actually caught the Astros spying in the middle of a game, they removed the guy who was stealing signs that was an Astros employee posing to be a media member in the camera well. <laughs> with, with, with the, he was recording things and then texting frequently. Like, this is what they're doing on the road. So if you combine the stories, it's like, oh, wow. You look at my report last year, here's what they do on the road. And then this report this year, here's what they do at home. You'd think that everybody now would combine these two stories. My story from last year has been ignored to the point where it's almost blatantly on purpose. I, this is, and, and, you know, maybe I sound paranoid to you, but whatever. I mean, it's real. It's, it's real. It, they are, so here's a story on ESPN.com today. I actually wasn't really going to go in on this, and I saw this on ESPN.com today. It's a top story on ESPN.com as I'm recording this show. It says, sources, MLB contacts Astros Red Sox as sign-stealing investigation expands. Okay? So they con- the ML- Major League Baseball contacts the Astros and the Red Sox. And we say that because you know Alex Cora was a member of the Astros organization. Now he's the manager of the Red Sox. But you would put all these things together and think that this ESPN story would somehow mention my report from last year. And in fact, it doesn't. And the first paragraph 
mentions 2017 and 2019, but doesn't mention the 2018 Astros. Here's the first sentence, the first paragraph. Major League Baseball's investigation into illegal sign stealing is expected to expand beyond the 2017 Houston Astros and look into whether other teams, including the 2019 Astros, use technology to aid hitters. Sources familiar with the situation told ESPN. End quote. So you're, you're going you're gonna to come up with a story here on the Astros spying, getting caught spying, getting caught stealing signs. You're going to mention the 2017 Astros and even the 2019 Astros, and you're just going to completely just leave out the 2018 Astros who got caught during a playoff game because of my report? It, Like, am I taking crazy pills here? It feels like it. Like, what planet am I on? Where my report just gets ignored in this whole situation. And yeah, it might sound like I'm pounding my chest over this report. Because I am. I am. It's just getting ignored. Like, it didn't even happen. Sometimes I have to sit back and go, did I report that or did I dream that? Did I dream that I reported that? Or, did, like, do I exist? Am I? I slap myself here. Do I? Do I exist? <laughs> uh, you'll get your haters and your trolls on Twitter to be like, ah, you're not really relevant anyways, Danny. So who do you think you are? I mean, facts are facts. And the fact of the matter is, I'm the only one that reported this story last year. And if I didn't report it last year, I got news for you. I know who my sources were. Nobody else was going to be able to report this. That is a fact. I, I guarantee that. And if you say, well, how do you know? Well, here's how I know. Nobody reported it when it was going on in the Cleveland series. And a lot of it stemmed from, you know, a lot of me pulling the trigger on running with that story last year had to do with the fact that I knew Cleveland had tipped off the Red Sox. That was a big part of it. I, I, if I didn't have that piece, I don't know that I would have even ran with the story. But that piece put it all together. That, that kind of finalized it. Knowing what I had heard from Cleveland, from the Indians organization. Anonymous sources, obviously. But that put it all together for me. I'm the only one that reported that. And even though, sure, I might not be relevant on the national stage... You know, I know my space. I know my role. I know the what I'm working to become still. I get it. I get it. But that was, I, I mean, you, you cannot, you just can't deny what I reported last year. At the time, it didn't get denied. It got mentioned, but then it kind of got swept under the rug. Now it's Kenny Rosendahl and the boys are reporting it. Guess what? Guess what? It's a huge, it's a, it's a huge story now. And then you don't even mention my report from last year? Which might have opened the floodgates for all this, to be honest. And this first paragraph on ESPN.com, top story of the day, says Major League Baseball's investigation into illegal sign stealing is expected to expand beyond the 2017 Houston Astros and look into whether other teams, including the 2019 Astros, use technology to aid hitters. Sources familiar with the situation told ESPN. Jeff Passan, Jeff Passan, I don't even know how to say his name. I like reading him. He's good at what he does. But 
to have an opening paragraph and sentence. And I've read this story. And I keep seeing the 2017 and the 2019 Astros throughout the whole story. (laughs) Throughout the whole story. All it is is the 2017 Astros and the 2019 Astros. There's no mention of the 2018 Astros. How is that possible? How is it possible that you could do a you could have a top story on such a big story in Major League Baseball and ignore such a big story from last year's Astros team that got caught in the middle of a game? Here's how you ignore it. I report it. <laughs> I'm the one like like I'm the one who reported it. If Ken Rosenthal or Buster Only or even Jeff Passan reported that last year, you don't think he would have mentioned it? You don't think these guys would be mentioning that if those are the guys that reported it? Of course they would have. And they all came out of the woodwork last year confirming my report after I reported it. But nobody, nobody really, you know, n- nobody really had the details that I had. You know, maybe this guy got exposed a little bit after the fact. Um... You know, but I'm the one and the only one who reported that. And now they're just completely ignoring it to the point where they're only mentioning the 2017 Astros and the 2019 Astros. 2018 Astros, eh, didn't happen. We won't mention it. Oh, no, it happened, and you should mention it. And the fact that you're ignoring such a big piece to this Astros story tells me that it has more to do with the actual story. Right? Like, and I asked the question in the intro, am I shun from the good old boy baseball network? It's quite possible. But I'm sitting here thinking, like, why? Like, why? <laughs> like, why would I be, like, why would these guys, like, don't, you know, don't bring any, don't bring any publicity to him. Or don't bring any publicity to that report. That's a garbage report. It wasn't a garbage report. You all confirmed that it was true. In fact, it was probably the most factual, correct report out of all these things. Like, because even what Mike Fires is saying, you know, even the videos that we have, I mean, have they caught an actual person who was doing this stuff? I caught an actual person who got caught spying on the Red Sox during a playoff game on the road. So you should, the story should be combining the two. Here's what they do at home based on this report from Ken Rosenthal. Here's what they do at home to spy. And here's what they do on the road, as we should see from the 2018 Boston Metro report. You don't even get to say my name. Just mention the report. They're not even mentioning the report. The first sentence on ESPN.com, they talk about the 2017 Astros and the 2019 Astros. And in the whole story, it has nothing to do with 2018. The only thing that it says about 2018 is that, and here's a sentence about the former Astros bullpen coach who joined the Red Sox with Alex Cora in 2018. The year the Red Sox won the World Series. That's that. That's all it says. And it mentions the Red Sox um, with the Apple Watch. And, uh, you know, I keep looking, I keep looking. Um, you know, there's allegations from, it goes back to Mike Fiers. Uh... I don't see, I see they talk about the 2019 American League Championship Series against the Yankees. Um, 
They mention the 2017 World Series. They mention Boston in 2018. And they they just don't mention, I don't see it. Unless you point it out to me. And you can you can show they they don't they don't mention it they ignore it the whole story ignores it it's, it's incredible it's incredible you have and this isn't the only outlet I know I'm calling out ESPN and ESPN.com right now and Jeff Passan but this isn't the only outlet I've read a handful of major sports networks with stories on this that go into detail on the history of Houston Astros accusations that they were spying and and most of them. Not all, most of them, uh, not even acknowledging my report from last year, which you would think is a pretty big report. So what is it? Is it that the report wasn't meaningful or important? Of course it was meaningful and important. Or, or was it, I'm the one that reported it. But then I'm like, well, what would the good old boy baseball network, have, what, what do they have against me? It's because I just went after Woody Page. Well, I started to think, like, I started to think outside the box. Like, uh, have I ever had a beef with a baseball guy with, like, a a baseball beat red? I mean, I used to cover the Red Sox. I was at Fenway every day for, like, three or four years as a beat red. I worked under Sean McAdam for Comcast Sportsnet New England. You know, I was in the clubhouses, home, visitors' clubhouses, on the field, before games, sitting in the dugout. I, I, I did that. I covered that beat. I did it pretty well. I busted my balls. And he tried to think of like, did I have any issue? Did, did I have an issue with anybody? And I can't I can't recall one. I think I would remember that. The only the only issue I kind of had was you know, Terry Francona came at me a couple times. I thought that I was he, he embarrassed the shit out of me a couple times. I will never forget that. Fuck that guy. Um you know, there were times Dustin Pedroia said some things to me. I didn't like it. I, I, I don't, I don't like, I'm not, I'm not too fond of Dustin Pedroia, as you know, if you listen to this show. Um, like, I, I think he wouldn't talk to normal people in the street the way he would talk to some people, I thought. I, I just don't think he would have the balls to do it, to talk to random people in the street like that. But, you know, that's, that's him. That says a lot about him. But that's with that, with that effect, the good old boy baseball network to just ignore my report on the 2018 Astros spying on the Red Sox? I don't think so. I'm trying to think of beefs, and, and I came up with one this morning. I'm like, oh, yeah, back in 2012. Back in 2012. Richard Justice. Do you know Richard Justice? He's a longtime baseball columnist. You used to see he might still be on around the horn. Not a, excuse me, not around the horn. Pardon the interruption. So now, if you think about it from ESPN's perspective, I have had beefs with with a guy on around the horn and pardon the interruption. And these are beefs that like I feel like I got dragged into. And I didn't even want to be a part of. Woody Page recently. He's always on around the horn. And I think back to 2012, my beef with Richard Justice. You would know Richard Justice if you've seen him. If you ever watch Pot and the Interruption, you know, they have like the five good minutes with something with someone. He he used to work for the Houston Chronicle. Now he works for MLB.com. Oh yeah. MLB.com. That's right. Works for Major League Baseball. So I started to put the pieces together. 
I don't know that Richard Justice has bad mouthed me to people behind my back. But he probably has. Do you not know what happened? Let, let's just go over what happened. This is comical. And by the way, this makes him, I think he's, if he's pissed at me, this dude, and I don't know that he is, maybe he is, I will put money that he is. Because I did go public with this. Richard Justice, back in 2012, I was, when I used to do my other podcast called I'm Just Saying, and actually was, for a little bit, it was a live stream from my apartment, the living room of my apartment in Southie, and it would be a live stream video, and I would do it, the audio would be, the live stream was on, I think, Ustream, a website called Ustream, and then the audio would be from Blog Talk Radio. And you could take calls on Blog Talk Radio. And since I didn't have any producer or anything, and I wanted to take the calls live during the show, what I would do is I would set up the guest, you know, the day before, the night before, and I would give the guest the number that Blog Talk Radio had for me where people can call in. People can call me. So when I see the number pop up, and I know the number that's calling, I answer it and they come on the show. But they would have to call me on the live stream. And in 2012... In February of 2012, to be exact, because I am currently looking at the emails that me and Richard Justice was sending back and forth. In February of 2012, I had asked him if he'd come on the show, if he'd call in. I was a big fan of his. I used to see him on Pardon the Interruption. And, you know, he joined me on the show. Or at least that's what I thought he was going to do. And so I, I... I reached out and asked and he was kind enough to reply right away. And we went back and forth and he was telling me certain dates, certain times you couldn't do. And we were emailing back and forth and we came up with a day and a time at 9.30 a.m. one one morning. And uh, I said, uh, oh, he gave me his number. He gave me the phone number to call him. And so here's what I said to Richard Justice. I said, okay, great. This is an exact reading from an email. I said, okay, great. Not to be a pain in the ass on purpose, but I have to have all my guests call in because I can't dial out on the webcast. I usually text my guests with the number to call me just before they come on. I can do that if you'd like. Again, sorry for the inconvenience. That was my email to Richard Justice after he agreed to come on. He responds, sure. Okay, so I've said to him, um, you know, I will, I will text you the number that, that you can call. As I'm doing the, the live stream, I will send a text, hey, here's the number to call. That's how I would get my guests on the live stream to call in. I told him I'd do that. He said, sure. So the next, the next morning... Right? It was it March 1st? It was on March 1st, 2012. The next morning, uh, I actually I had emailed him the number for him to call while I was doing the show, it looks like, around 9.30. 9.30 a.m. on March 1st. He emails me back. Now, keep in mind, I'm doing the show at this point in time. Like, the show was live. I was doing the show. And I would get a decent amount of listeners when I was doing blog talk radio because I used to promote it. Um, a lot. I mean, not as many as I get now, but you know, I've obviously built an audience over the years. But um, I was doing it. I was doing a decent, a decent hit, a decent enough hit where 
you know, I didn't feel the need to just stop the show because he wasn't going to come on. So the show kept going. I'm doing the live stream. We're emailing back and forth. I sent him the number. He emails me back a minute later. After I gave him the number to call in, he emails me back. He says, is that a long-distance call? It says sent from my iPhone, by the way. So you know he was emailing me from his iPhone. He says, is that a long-distance call? That's what he asked me. So I respond. During the show, I, I responded, it's blog talk radio. I think New York City. I think it was a New York City number. That's just the blog talk radio, the way they functioned. He emails me back at 9.45 a.m. This is a direct <laughs> This is insane. This is a direct... And I already went public with this, so I, I'm trying to say, like, this maybe is a reason somebody from MLB or part, he's part of the good old boy baseball reporting network that might be bad multimedia people. I don't know. I went public with this already, but I'll do it again in case you missed it. He, he says, is that a long-distance call? I say, it's Blog Talk Radio. I think New York City. He responds in an email, and I quote, Hey, I'm not spending my money to do your show. That makes no sense. <laughs> End email. Also sent from his iPhone, it says. Now, this email, the words my and your are in caps. <laughs> All caps. So he's stressing my money to do your show. This is the direct quote. Hey, I'm not spending my money to do your show. That makes no sense. With my and your in all caps. (laughs) Now, the show, I believe, only was like from 9 to 10 a.m. So at 10.06 a.m., I must have been done with the show. I emailed him back. I said, okay, I apologize. It's only a webcast. So I physically cannot dial out because the system doesn't allow me to. I get guests every day and that's never been an issue. Just trying to find my way in this business. I did not mean to anger you. Again, I apologize for that. Take care. A couple hours later, Richard Justice emails me back. He says, quote, some guy on Twitter is calling me scummy for not calling in today. Am I scummy for not spending my money to appear on your show? You got to help me out here. <laughs> I just, this is beautiful. I'm just, I'm just, this is all coming back to me. This is absolutely beautiful. This is beautiful stuff. Wow. I forgot. I mean, I kind of forgot. I knew I had a beef with Richard Justice, but I, I'm, I forgot all these emails. It's all coming back to me though. Did, I'll read that again. He says, quote, Some guy on Twitter is calling me scummy for not calling in today. Am I scummy for not spending my money to appear on your show? You gotta help me out here. (laughs) Like, dude, how much money do you think this is gonna cost? Also, what type of phone plan do you have? Like, what's happening right now? Like, where do you you think, and where do you think you're calling to? Like, it's a New York City number, I think. That's what Blog Talk Radio gave me. It was, uh, let's see, I had the number. I gave it. What was it? 347. That was the number. Is that a New York City number? I don't know. It's what Blog Talk Radio gave me. This guy's like, I'm not spending my money to do your show. Someone on Twitter is calling me scummy. Am I scummy for not wanting to pay my money to go on your show? That makes no sense. 
keep in mind, I explained to this guy, like, I'm doing a webcast. I'm trying to make, I'm trying to, I'm trying to build something. Like, were you not ever in my situation? Were you trying to build something? Like, I was sitting there with no money. Like, just at, he should have just said, no, I don't want to do the show. And I would have said, all right, that's fine. I've had people say no to me before. You can't do it. You can't do it. That's fine. I'm not going to hold it against you. But to agree to do the show, agree that he would have to call in. And then while I'm doing the show, when I send him the number, he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Is this a long distance call? I'm not spending my money to do your show. And then continues to defend his stance being like, does that make sense for me to spend my money to do your show? That makes no sense. The most, like, so if you want to talk about petty, insecure, just loses in this industry, this is a perfect example. This is why when Woody Page, not too long ago, denied getting me released from the Podcast One Network, denied being pissed at my tweet, calling him an 85-year-old man, which was harmless compared to some of the things other shows on that network have done and said recently, who are still, by the way, on the Podcast One Network, uh, T.I., and whatever stupid podcast he was on, talk. I'm not even. Gonna, I don't even want to repeat what they were talking about. It's just bizarre. But they're, they're fine on the net. This show's fine on the network. Some people said to me, "Oh, at least they apologized for it." <laughs> yeah, let me apologize for calling Woody Page an old man. Isn't that just a fact? And I didn't mean it. It wasn't. If you listened to the show, if you if you saw me break it down, it wasn't malicious at all. Anyways. The reason I don't believe Woody Page is because I know how insecure some people are in this business. How foolish some people are in this business. Right? And this issue that I had with Richard Justice that came out of nowhere is a perfect example. He doesn't want to spend his money to call into my show after he agreed to do it. Where do you think you're calling to? And what type of phone plan do you have? Like, was I asking for much? And, and like, he's, so he's starting to feel the heat. He's starting to feel the heat. I sent him an email saying, I don't speak for anyone else on Twitter but myself. I don't get paid for this show. It's a personal webcast. I can't help you out with money. Um, I, I go on to say I get all these guests on the show, you know, and it's a 60-minute show. It's not an ideal situation for me. But what people on Twitter are saying has nothing to do with me. I've moved on. And I even finished it saying, let it be known, however, that I am extremely grateful that you even responded to my original request. And so I was, at the time, being nice about it. I'm like, this is ridiculous, but whatever. Like, what's done is done. I did the show. I don't need this dude to do a show. I don't need this dude in my career. I just asked. But he's being ridiculous now. But I I was, you know, Mr. Nice Guy. Then he responds to me. He says, hell, I don't want to be a jerk. Can we do it tomorrow or this afternoon? I responded, I'm only on 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern time on weekdays. I've already got a show and a guest scheduled for tomorrow. I will reach out again at some point in the future and email. And that's he never responded to that. But that's where we ended. I never responded back to him. But I do recall I did. I did. I did tweet about it. I did call him out. I did call him out. And perhaps when I get into, well, why am I being ignored right now by the good old boy baseball media network when it comes to 
you know, the reports on the Houston Astros spying and they're kind of just ignoring my report. Why is that? Did I, did, did I, you know, go after someone and they're just trash talking me behind my back to other baseball reporters and, and, and other guys in the baseball media world? Somebody that has their respect already because they've been working with these guys for years? Somebody that works for Major League Baseball and, and writes for MLB.com? Is there anybody that I've crossed paths with that, that maybe they don't like me for a certain reason? And I've been out there running their mouth and talking shit behind my back. And maybe leading some of these baseball guys to... Yeah, at the time last year, they had to acknowledge my report because it was a real report. It really happened. And it was a huge story. But now, when they got their own stuff, they're going to just come out and mention 2017 and 2019. And they're not going to mention 2018. What's the reason for that? Is it because my report is not relevant? No, it's pretty damn relevant. Is it because my report wasn't big and truthful? No, it was huge. And it was as factual as reports can get. I always joked, my message to kids in this industry, do less and get it wrong. Maybe I should have exaggerated a couple things in that story last year. Maybe I would have got a couple job interviews because of that story, right? How many people, you could, I, you could sit there and name 10 people. You could write down 10 names, watch them. You could watch them all over TV. You could see them. Whoever, doesn't matter. You can see him on Twitter. You can write 10, people, 10 people's names down right now who would get job interviews in this industry for anything, for any position, just if they had the same report on the Astros spy in last year that I did. You can name 10 people. You can write them down to piece of paper right now. 10 people, tweet them out. 10 people that would get job interviews for anything in this industry because of that one report. You know how many I got? Zero. I've actually had to take pay cuts after that report. Okay. <laughs> What? Like, I, and, and you know, I, and I kind of did this on the whole Woody Page Podcast 1 podcast not too long ago when they released me for no reason at all and ended up taking money out of my pocket for no reason at all. It's like, at some point, you got to defend yourself. And I'm sitting around here looking at all these Major League Baseball reports and seeing them completely ignore me, reading an, the top story on ESPN.com right now. Throughout the whole story, mentions the 2017 Astros, and the 2019 Astros, when it comes to spying and getting caught, spying and cheating, and they don't mention my report. It's insane. It's not because the report wasn't right or wasn't big. It was. There's got to be another reason for it. Well, are, are, are they just purposely not not mentioning it because I'm the one who reported it? Do people have something against me? Uh, maybe. Maybe Richard Justice is still got his panties in a bunch about having to spend 35 cents for a 10-minute phone call on a live stream. Somebody who didn't make any money on the show. I lost money. I used to have to pay for Blog Talk Radio, I think. Like, that reaction that he had to that small moment being so concerned about how much money he would have to spend on calling into a show that he agreed to come on in the first place. A show that wasn't making any money. That reaction that he had tells me that it's not out of the question that someone that insecure would still be holding a grudge that I called him out on it after the fact. And I did call him out on it. I forget when or how. Maybe even on this show, I've talked about it a couple times, but definitely on Twitter. I, I quoted what he said in the email. 
I could see someone this insecure holding that grudge. And not only holding that grudge, but knowing the way this industry works and the people that uh, will be so quick to talk shit behind your back, especially if they see somebody that is doing a job that, you know, again, like there aren't many jobs in this industry. It's a, it's a dirty business. What's the reason I don't get promoted? Like from others. Others don't promote my work or promote my shit. Or at times it gets ignored. What's the reason for that? Because some of it's not good enough? Because I don't get big guests on this show? Because I don't break big stories? What's the reason? Think about that. What's the reason? You know what the reason is. They know what the reason is. And I don't know if Richard Justice has anything to do with it. But you know what? If I had to put my money on it, I think I might put my money on maybe he does. Maybe he does. Okay, whatever. I mean, it, it is what it is. It's just... I'm reading these stories and I'm going, am I on another planet? Like, what What do you got to do? What do you got to do? Right? I've had people tell me, you've done everything you need to do. And then some. You're right, I have. You Get the list out. Check them off. Why, if you're a Major League Baseball reporter right now, and you're doing this Houston Astros bit on spine and getting caught stealing signals. Why is it that you would not even mention what happened with the Astros in the ALCS in 2018? Why would you not mention that? Does anybody have an answer to that? I mean, it can't be what was in the story, because what was in the story was real, was true, was confirmed by all of them, and is a huge piece connected to this current puzzle that everyone's putting together. But yet they're not, they're leaving that piece of the puzzle out. There's a big hole in this puzzle. They're not mentioning it. Why? I don't know. I think it's because I'm the one who reported it. Believe me, if Buster only reported that thing last year, they'd all be talking about that moment and referencing that last year. They all would be. They all would be. Don't tell me they wouldn't be. You know they would be. Richard Justice. I'm not spending my money to do your show. That makes no sense. Dude. Dude. This is a guy who had a job. This is a guy who had a job at that point. And I'm not trying to... I'm not going over what other people are making. That's that's none of my business. None of my business. I don't want to know. But man. Times are that tough. I know his times weren't tougher than me. Tougher than my times at that point in time. I know that for sure. How much was it going to cost? What type of call are we talking about? Time to do a couple things. Reevaluate your phone plan, okay? Do you get charged for that? Is that like a, is that a hefty fee? <laughs> I was shocked by that. I still am when I go back to it. And then he defends it in another email. He says, am I scummy for not spending my money to appear on your show? You got to help me out here. (laughs) You loser. What a loser. What an absolute loser. Um, anyways, it's just insane, man. It's insane. I worked hard on that story. And it is just, like, I'm not trying to say that the story now, 
I'm not trying to say that the story now is... Like, I'm not trying to say that I reported the same stuff from this story now. No, these are new details. But, like, right now, the story is larger than these new details. The story is the Astros have a history of spying, both at home and on the road, and here's how. And yet, as all these guys continue to point out the here's how, here's where they have a history of spying, a lot of the bigger name baseball media members and reporters are not even, they're not even acknowledging my report from last year. And you, you can't tell me that it's because of the report itself. Because the report itself is factual and they've all confirmed it. So what's the other reason? I mean, it's got to be because I'm the one who reported it. <laughs> right? There's no other reason. There's no other reason. Here's the deal. I need to know what Mookie Betts wants. People are on Twitter, they're saying, Mookie wants this, that, the other thing. You know how you find out if you're the Red Sox? You make him an offer. And don't tell me the Red Sox have made him a legitimate offer, because if they did and he said no, it would be in the Globe the next day. Okay? It would. Or someone would get it. The Red Sox would leak that out. And their strategy might not even be to leak it to the globe because then it would look a little too dirty. And then maybe you do lose Mookie Betts. He gets pissed off at you. If you're the Red Sox, if you offered Mookie Betts $300 million over eight years, which is more than Rendon, right? Again, Rendon, seven years, $245 mil. Mookie Betts is like, I want to make more than that. So... Automatically, it's at least eight years. It's more than 245. So let's just say 300. And I've already played this out for you, this contract that I would offer him. But we'll do it again now that we know Rendon. We'll call it 300 over eight years. That's 37 and a half mil. That's a record-setting average annual value salary. If you offered Mookie Betts that right now, and he rejected a $300 million deal over eight years, which would give him a record-setting and the highest average annual value in all of baseball. You're saying to Mookie Betts, we are going to make you the highest-paid player in baseball every single season. Yeah, it's not the highest total contract. You know, Mike Trout, what was Mike Trout? 420? Over 12? Uh, yeah, it's not even Bryce Hoppers at 330, 330 mil overall. Um... Yeah, it's not Garrett Cole, three on 24 mil. But it's more than Strasburg. It's more than Rendon, and we're using Rendon right now. You know? It's more than Arenado. Um, and we're going to pay you 37.5 mil per year. You want opt-outs? We'll give you opt-outs. But if they offered that to Mookie Betts and he rejected it, we would hear about it. Because if I'm the Red Sox and he rejects that, I'm leaking it to someone. Maybe it isn't the Globe because then it looks too obvious that we're doing him dirty. Because maybe then there still is a negotiation and a chance to negotiate. But if he rejects 300 mil over eight years, <laughs> if I'm high and bloom, who am I texting? Who am I texting? Hey, uh, let me pull up Sean McAdam. Hey, uh, Sean. Yeah. Uh, listen, I need you to run with something anonymously. You're speaking to an anonymous person. But Mookie Betts has rejected. Sources tell you 
Mookie Betts has rejected a $300 million deal over eight years, which would make him the highest paid player per year and give him the highest average annual salary in Major League Baseball. He rejected that. Please run. Thank you. Anonymous GM. That's what I would do. And I think they would do it too. The fact that they're not tells me they didn't make that offer to him. And don't give me, well, he's going to reject that anyway, so why would you make it? No, no, no. You make it so it's on the record, baby. If you think that Mookie is long gone and he is out and he is not coming back and he wants $475 million over 15 years, or at least that's what he's asking for, and you, and you know you're getting nowhere close to that, and rightfully so, you don't get close to that. This is a, this right now is a PR battle. Right? Who gets out of this looking the best? If you're the Red Sox, he rejects $300 million from you over eight years. Send that baby out. Send that puppy out. That's This is going to someone. This is getting out there. They're talking about that on sports radio. They're talking about that on TV and podcasts and writing about that in columns all over the, the sports world and in New England. You're going to say we look bad? Mookie Betts is gone? You're going to blame that on us? We made him a contract that would have paid him mo- the most money, average annual, than anyone in the game. How's that on us? That's how the Red Sox would look good. They know that. But that hasn't been leaked yet. So if it hasn't been leaked, they haven't offered it yet. So make the offer if you're the Red Sox. If they don't, we you know, we hear all this luxury tax stuff. But again, like, the, the purpose of trading someone like David Price is to free up some salary, along with the salary that you're shedding. I mean, Rick Porcello's not coming back. He just signed a one-year deal with the Mets. It was a one-year 10 mil. All right, you shed some other salary. Um, and, you know, maybe there's someone else you move. Maybe, right? Maybe you move Jackie Bradley Jr. Like, but people are trying to tell me that the Red Sox need to rebuild. Rebuild? That makes no sense to me. And if it makes sense to you, maybe we just have a different definition of rebuild. Trading David Price is not a rebuild. And I actually, I responded to Lou Merloni, um, who, who tweeted the, one of the, he was one of the people who tweeted the rebuild things. And I responded, I said, rebuild? The Red Sox, a majority of the Red Sox lineup, most of the Red Sox lineup right now, forget about pitching staff, most of their lineup, you know, if I'm thinking, if you're putting Chavis at first, if you're getting Pedroia back to play second, Everybody outside of the DH and J.D. Martinez is homegrown talent. And I think seven of nine of those guys are homegrown talent in their 20s. When you rebuild, that's the exact team that you tried to build. The one the Red Sox currently have. Which is a lineup filled with homegrown talent in their 20s for the most part. Why are you trying to break that up? That makes no sense. You rebuild to build what the Red Sox currently have. Trade in David Price should only be a move made in order to sign Mookie Betts. Right? So, trade in David Price is not rebuilding. To me, rebuilding is if you traded 
you know, you sent, you packaged Bogots, um, Vasquez, Jackie Bradley, and even Mookie. You traded all those guys, and you just got all these top prospects. That's a rebuild. You know, you trade Sale and Price. You trade Bogots. You trade Jackie Bradley. You trade Mookie. That's a rebuild. I'm not looking to rebuild. You need to make moves here and there. We've talked about the moves. We all know the moves. It does all come back to Mookie Betts. There's a belief out there that Mookie Betts knows what he wants and is going to go get it. And it's high. And if it's, you know, 400 mil, I don't blame the Red Sox if they don't want to pay it. But you got to make them an offer. You got to get them to think. You got to get Mookie Betts to say, well, wow, they're offering me 300 mil over eight years. I got to think about this. Because what if we get the free agency next year and that's not there for me? Then I'm, I'm screwing myself. Or what if I get hurt? You know? Like, you got to put that in the table for him. So I think it's easy to blame Mookie and say, well, Mookie knows what he wants and the, it's, it's a ridiculous office, so you got to trade him. Well, if you're the Red Sox, show me. I want you, I want the Red Sox to show me that Mookie Betts doesn't want to be here or that Mookie Betts is gone and he's dead set on hitting free agency and there's nothing you can do about it if you're the Red Sox. I want the Red Sox to show me that. You know how you show me that? You offer him 300 mil over eight years. That's more than what Rendon just got. And you say 300 mil over eight years is 37 and a half mil per season. You're the highest paid player every year for the next eight years. At least for now. That's the highest average annual salary in baseball. That's what we want to, that's the offer we give you. And if he rejects it, then, you know, you send the anonymous text to a reporter outside of the globe. Because again, I think that's too obvious and too shady. And you say, hey, Mookie just rejected this. Run with it. It, I'm anonymous, by the way. And show us that Mookie is leaving. And it's his decision. You got to make the offer. Have to. Have to. Have to. Especially now that Rendon gets that contract. 245 over 7. Mookie wants at least 8 and at least 300 mil. And that's what I'd offer him. That's what I'd offer him. 300 mil over eight. If he rejects it, it's not on the Red Sox. It's not. It's not. We've been doing this. I've been doing this the last couple shows. Last week, we did the the new Spygate accusations that the Patriots were spying on the Cincinnati Bengals the week before when a, a film crew from Kraft Sports Productions was filming an episode for their Do Your Job series on the website, Patriots.com, and they were filming an advanced scout. And when they're filming this advanced scout, they basically go to him while he's on the job. And he was on the job, not this weekend, but the weekend before, scouting, doing the advanced scouting of the team the Patriots are playing next, which was the Cincinnati Bengals. The Bengals were playing in Cleveland. The advanced scout was in Cleveland scouting the Bengals from the press box. This film crew went with him as part of this series on Patriots.com where they film the advanced scout doing his job. That's the name of the that's the name of the series, do your job. And what the film crew did was they set up a camera with a tripod in the front row of the press box in front of everybody. In in, in front of 
you know, Bengals officials, NFL officials, and they hit record, and they were filming what was going on on the field. And Bengals officials came up to this videographer, and they questioned him, and they confiscated the tape, as well as NFL officials. The NFL's currently investigating. Roger Goodell has spoken on it. He says, that, you know, they're looking into it. They want to get it right. Reports have come out that said the Patriots, based on the history of both accusations and back in 2007, the fact that they were on the Jets' sideline, filming the Jets' sideline, they got punished there, 500000 I think Belichick got fined, and they lost the first-round pick. Given the history of all this stuff, of everything with the Patriots, the NFL is considering a, a to, to penalize the Patriots, whether it's another fine or another taking away another draft pick. All these reports, and then on yesterday, on Sunday before the game, Jay Glazer for Fox Sports, who's very well connected in National Football League, always has some type of scoop. He revealed on Fox, this is probably about like 15 minutes before the Patriots game against the Bengals, Jay Glazer revealed his footage, not his footage, but the footage that was given to him, of Cincinnati Bengals officials going up to the Patriots videographer and questioning him and, you know, taking the tape and basically telling him, you know, being like, hey, you got caught, you know? The damage is done. And I'm going to play the audio for you in just a second. But that was the news yesterday going into the game that Jake Glazer had this video of this situation in the press box the week before, the situation that we were talking about all week last week, the situation that I kept telling you is a non-issue. It was a videographer who just made a mistake. Was it, you know, was it a dumb mistake given everything that's gone on in the history of the organization? Like, yeah, it was a dumb mistake. But what I told you last week was, what's what's even dumber than that is people thinking that Bill Belichick put him up to it, right? People thinking that Bill Belichick is that stupid. Like, that's dumber than what the videographer did. And I told you, I just think it was a harmless mistake. The the, The kid has no connection to football operations. What he was filming had nothing to do with anything that football operations with the Patriots was doing. And that you can't possibly believe the Patriots would be that dumb to risk so much in order to gain some type of advantage on a 1-12 Bengals team that doesn't even want to win, that's looking to lose in order to get a f- the number one overall pick. And so the risk just didn't even match the reward because there really wasn't a reward. And it was just so blatantly obvious and so dumb of a move that you can't possibly think Bill Belichick is that stupid to do this in front of everybody. You can't. I tweeted out last night. I said, when you watch this video that Jay Glazer released, in which there's a conversation between Bengals officials and the videographer himself for the Patriots, which Bengals officials are like, what are you doing? And they're questioning him. And the Patriots videographer says, well, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know. I'm sorry. I can delete the tape. You, you mean to tell me that you could watch that video And you could say to yourself, Bill Belichick, yeah, he must have said to this kid, hey, go set up your camera in the front row of the press box in front of Bengals officials and NFL officials, and if they catch you, just tell them you'll delete the tape. Just tell them you'll you'll delete it. You think that's what, you think that's what, you think that, you think Bill Belichick 
And the Patriots football operations put this kid up to that and gave him that advice and told him to do that. No, if you think that, like I told you last week, the clip is on YouTube, on my YouTube channel. It's on my podcast. I told you, if you believe that, you're an idiot. Because you think Bill Belichick obviously is a moron. But what it really is is just people have brainwashed themselves into wanting the Patriots to get caught. People want the Patriots to get caught doing something. And so when they have anything that might add fuel to that fire of they, you know, what they want to have happen, which I told you, I went on the rant last week, it's just such a dangerous thing in this world, in the media, that you have media members and people with a voice and, and people who have such a large on such a large platform, with such a large audience, they can take their opinion and they can throw that opinion into a report and they can twist the facts into making it sound like and look like something that they want to be true rather than using some common sense and some logic and going, eh, wait a minute, before we start calling the Patriots cheaters in this situation, why don't we add some common sense and some logic into it there's no way Bill Belichick told this kid to do this. Because it's just not a very bright move, given the history and given the risk that you're taking. And then, you it's the Bengals. Like, there's no reward. <laughs> like, the 1-12 in 12 Bengals. Like, come on, guys. Let's use some common sense. So, that's what I told you last week. I see this video on Sunday. And, you know, you see it on social media, like the comments. You could tell the people... That going into the video, they already had brainwashed themselves into the Patriots were doing this to steal signals or cheat and spy on the Bengals. Like, there, there are people who, who went into watching this video believing that, and those people will come out believing that because, not because they saw anything crazy in the video, but because they've already brainwashed themselves into believing the Patriots were cheating in this situation. They've already brainwashed themselves into believing that the Patriots... All they do is cheat. And they've brainwashed themselves into thinking this because that's what they want to be true. They want the Patriots dynasty to end. They want the Patriots to be these big cheaters. They want them to get caught again so that there's some type of punishment that will really be the last blow and the last straw. And so Shannon Shop or any of these guys on Fox Sports 1 can get on their terrible shows and, and say, that's it for Bill Belichick. He's got to go. Right? Like, that's what they want. This is, this, the fuel that, that they were given to, to reignite that flame of, we want the Patriots dynasty to end. Like, this was kind of the perfect situation for them. They could rally behind this, and then they get video of it, and they get the Patriots videographer saying, hey, I'll delete the tape. Like, if you want to believe the Patriots were cheating, you could take all this stuff, you can add it to the history of accusations and the history of penalties, and you could convince yourself that, yeah, they were cheating again, if that's what you want to believe. And a lot of people want to believe that. I saw this video, and you, again, I, I get it. There's the other side of that, where there's, there's some people that no matter what, the Patriots did nothing wrong. Look, I know sometimes I might sound like that, but if you listen to me over the long haul and everything that I've ever done... There are times I criticize them, right? I, I'm sorry, there are. I mean, if you're saying if you're saying there's no times, I, if you're saying I never criticize the Patriots, then I just don't think you listen all the time. I mean, I I go back to Deflategate. 
Do I think they probably deflated footballs? Yeah, I actually think they probably did. But do I think they did it in this evil, mysterious, breaking the rules manner? No, I don't think they did. Like, there were other factors involved. Like, things that you saw in the reports where the officials were were over-pumping. They were putting too much air in the footballs. And Brady's like, what are you guys doing? Like, so you got to use logic. You got to factor in common sense. You try to simplify this stuff. It's not, it's not always as mysterious and evil as, as ESPN might want to make it out to be, as Diana Rossini might want to tweet it out to be, right? That's all they do is speculate nonsense and garbage and trash. And, and sometimes you got to use common sense, but there are not a lot of people in the media who have any common sense because, to be honest, they're all obsessed with how many retweets they get or how many views they get or how many people can be talking about them and their work. They don't give a fuck about the facts. They don't. If you watch the video that Jay Glazer put out before the game on Sunday, you should watch that and go, there is no way... Bill Belichick told this videographer to do this. Like, there's no way. If you think, if you watch that video that Jay Glazer put out and you believe that Bill Belichick put this videographer up to that, you're an idiot. And you also think Bill Belichick is the dumbest person in the National Football League. And I get news for you. He's probably the smartest person in the National Football League. And if you don't know that, if you don't know that by now, you're also, you're also showing how stupid you are. So, I'm going to play you just a quick audio clip from these Bengals officials coming up to the Patriots videographer. Basically, this is a video of the video. Somebody was recording the videographer with his camera looking down at the field. And, you know, you get the part that you can see, obviously, what the camera is shooting. And then the Bengals official comes up to him and questions him about it. (laughs) Here's quickly just a little bit of the back and forth between the Bengals official and the Patriots videographer. Here it is. And this is a piece you're filming on your advance scout? Yeah. Yeah. Come on, guys. I don't see the advance scout in this footage. No, it's not. We were trying to get some field perspective. My bad. That's not the field. That's why you would think you could take that. I didn't know. But I can delete this right here for you. (laughs) Damage is done, my friend. No, it isn't. (laughs) The damage is done, my friend. What a loser. Like, he comes up to the kid film and he says, I don't see the advanced scout anywhere. Now, clearly, at that point, that's that Bengals official has the mindset of the Patriots are spying on us. That's it. He's brainwashed himself. The minute he the minute he says that, that's such a stupid comment. Because if you actually do step back and go, well, what? If, and you you use common sense. You say, well, what if they're telling the truth? And what if they really are filming a feature on the advanced scout? Right. You don't have the camera on the advanced scout the whole time. Like that. That's. What what type of feature is that? You need some footage of what the advanced scout is scouting. If you're doing a feature on an advanced scout, you're not doing the feature on what color sweater he's wearing that day. So you keep the camera on him. Oh, how is he going to pick his nose in the second quarter? Oh, what's he going to drink in the third quarter? Like, what are you, an idiot? So this Bengals official, obviously, is a couple things. One, 
he's stupid. Two, he's just a, a absolute boob, right? Oh, the, you can you can't delete it now. The damage is done. Like what a loser! What a buffoon! Like he thinks he's got he thinks he's got all the answers. He thinks he's caught them red-handed. His mindset, he's like. I don't see any video of the advanced scout right now at all. You do you record in the field. Well, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. He's got to record what the advanced scout is scouting. That's part of the feature. He's trying to show the rest of the world what the what this advanced scout is doing on this given day. You think he should just sit there and turn the camera at the advanced scout the whole time? See if he's you know is, is he using a number 2 pencil in the fourth quarter like how stupid do you got to be? Well, it's, it's stupidity, but it's also just being somebody that is convinced going into this conversation. You know, he says, the damage is done. We got you now. We caught you red-handed. That was his goal. They, they were watching them film this video of the field, and they said, wow, they're spying on us. And he didn't want it any other way. Let me repeat that. He didn't want it any other way. If he used some common sense and some logic in that moment... This video clip that Jay Glazer put out that had that conversation that I just played for you between a Bengals official and the videographer for the Patriots, it would have went completely different if this guy wasn't say, if this Bengals official wasn't such a boob. He wanted the Patriots to be cheating and wanted them to be spying on the Bengals. He thought he had it all figured out based on what he wanted to believe. He wanted to catch the Patriots red-handed. Like, a lot of people want the Patriots to get caught red-handed. He wanted the Patriots to get caught red-handed. And he, there was nothing else. There was nothing else in his... No, you couldn't say anything to that guy in that moment. Oh, because you know what he knew? He knew the damage is done. This is damage. Damaging video. Advanced scout. You're not putting the... Where's, where's the video of the advanced scout? You're pointing it at the field. The damage is done. What a boob. That guy should be out of a job, too. Bengals official. You boob. Your team's 1-12. You suck. Well, now you're 1-13. You'll probably butcher the number one overall pick, too. You'll either take the wrong kid or you'll take the right kid and your organization will ruin his career. Talk about a, a buffoon... A franchise full of buffoons. You think the Patriots are spying on you? You wanted the Patriots to be spying on you. You wanted to be the guy that went to the NFL, that went to the the, the Bengals front office and said, hey, guys, look at me. I'm the hero in the Cincinnati Bengals organization. Hero. You're a clown. The damage is done. Let me, <laughs> let me play that. I got to play that one part for you one more time. The damage is done. And this is a piece of damage is done, my friend. No, it isn't. The damage is done, my friend. The damage is done, my friend. Like, what? <laughs> what does he think? He, what does he think? He's in a Marvel movie? Like, what do you think this is? Everything is so exaggerated, and we overreact to everything in this world. It's insane. That is, that is an insane reaction to something that should be simple to understand. And I've been trying to explain it to you. And people are just like, oh, why do you need so much footage of this? It's like, guys, even if he had, if he filmed the whole game, it's not like he's, like, when you get back to the editing process, you would rather have more than enough video footage 
than not have enough video footage when you get back to editing process. <laughs> because you can't go, you can't go back in time. If you're like, oh, we didn't get enough video. We only got three minutes of video. <laughs> we could have got the whole game. Well, now we can't go back in time. Now what are we going to do? Like, it's just a mindset. It, 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 we've, there's a stupidity level going on with this story that is just mind-blowing to me. And it continues with the Bengals organization. I can only imagine what the, NF, the people in the NFL, those idiots in the NFL, are thinking when they watch this video. Right? Right? They didn't think anything when they were watching the, uh, the, the Ray Rice elevator video. <laughs> they were wondering, oh, what floor are they on? Oh, what, are they going up to the fifth floor, the sixth floor? What hotel is this? That's what they're thinking probably during that video. Then, you know, they start talking about PSIs. They all become scientists in the NFL, in the NFL front offices. They, well, they're going to watch video of this, this Patriots videographer who has no link to Patriots football operations. And you know they're probably going to come. The NFL... Based on the Bengals official and the reaction that he had to that, I'm sitting there going, this is a non-issue and this video shows it. But this buffoon from the Bengals organization that reacts like that, who's like, the damage is done, my friend, that's probably going to be the exact same reaction by people in the NFL. Of course. Of course it is. This is stupidity. Stupidity. Pure, utter stupidity. It really, like, I, I, you shouldn't be shocked by it. If the Patriots lose a draft pick and get fined, like, we shouldn't be shocked by that. Because we heard what somebody, what a Bengals official thought of this. Which means that the NFL officials probably think the same thing. Stupidity. They don't use common sense. They don't use logic. If they did, then Tom Brady would have never been suspended for deflategate. All right. And a lot of, a lot of other crazy things would have either happened or not happened in NFL punish, in, in the history of NFL punishments. Right? If logic and common sense was used. It's non-existent in the NFL offices. And just hearing a Bengals official react like that. The damage is done, my friend. We got you caught red-handed. There's no video of the advanced scout. You know the NFL's going to react the same way. Man, you got to play in the wild card game because you lost at home to the Miami Dolphins in week 17. And when I watch this game twice, again, I'm almost speechless. We'll get into some of the plays and and the things that, that cost the Patriots the game. But, holy shit. Like, I, it's, just, it, it's shocking, not just, not just because they lost, but because of how they lost. The Patriots played this game. And they coached this game like they wanted the season to end. And, like, I just don't ever recall feeling that way watching a Patriots team play. There was still something on the line yesterday, something pretty big, something pretty important, that first round bye. How many times did they stress that during the game? How many times did they mention that during the game? You can roll your eyes at how many times they mentioned that during the game, but it was a real thing. It's real. It's, it's important. You need it. You should want it. The Patriots played and coached this game against the Dolphins yesterday. Like, they just wanted the season to end. Never mind, want, you know. Yeah, and, and 
I tried. There were moments yesterday where I tried to talk myself. Last night, I'm sitting there watching the San Francisco Seattle game, and I'm I keep thinking of the Patriots because they keep flashing the standings on and the playoff <laughs> picture on the TV screen, and I'm sitting there trying to trying to like come up with a glass half full approach for the Patriots now that they have to play in the wild card round against the Tennessee Titans. And the first thing is like, well, at least it's at home. One, okay, whatever. That's still, you know, whatever. But then you think, like, you try to spin it into a positive even more. You're like, well, if they're not ready to play Kansas City yet, and they didn't look good against the Dolphins, um, maybe they could get, maybe they, you know, maybe they need one more game before they play Kansas City to figure it all out, right? Maybe they need one more game. <laughs> and But even then, I'm like, no. Because even if you get that one game, you're going to go to Kansas City. Oh, this was garbage yesterday against Miami. Garbage. From the way they played to the way they coached to the way they looked, body language, like, what? Was that? What did we watch yesterday? What was it? And I'll get into the, to the mindset at the end of the first half, which was just brutal. I mean, I, I get confusing, shocking, to, to the point where I'm almost speechless from what I saw yesterday. Om- almost is the key word. Tom Brady's pick six was quite possibly the worst throw I have ever seen him make. Eric Rowe, pick six, you remember it. It was a ball that was thrown to the right side. You had Sony Michelle coming out of the backfield. Julian Edelman was in the area. It was somewhere in between both of those guys. It was a horrible throw. It was high. It was soft. It was... Brady kind of on his back foot. Eric Rowe steps up, picks off that ball that was thrown kind of in no man's land in between Michelle and Edelman, and he takes it to the house, and the Dolphins have a 10-0 lead in the second quarter. I've watched that Tom Brady interception 45 times. I have looked at everything. Tom Brady had great protection in the pocket on that throw. There was nobody pressuring him. It was a four-man rush. Uh, you you had he had maybe the best protection I've seen in a long time. You know Brady got hit a couple times yesterday, but overall he had a lot of protection yesterday. He had good protection up front. He had good protection on that pick six, but when he drops back and refuses to step into the throw and kind of throws it off his back foot. He is, that is a nervous quarterback. That is a nervous throw. That is a throw from a guy that thinks he's about to get hit. That is a throw from a guy that does not trust the guys in front of him. That is a throw from a guy that is seeing ghosts. Tom Brady is seeing ghosts. Even when there's no need to be seeing ghosts. And that tells me he does not trust anything that's going on up front. And that tells me that when they do practice... You know, people are going to talk about, is Tom Brady injured? Does he have an elbow injury? You know, he's wearing new cleats yesterday. Does he got some type of leg, foot, ankle, whatever it is? Is there a combination of a bunch of things going on with Tom Brady? Are there other things in his head with his contract and his future? 
uh, and his mindset as to the weapons that have that, that are around him and 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 you know he's their controversy all of this stuff combined we could talk about all of that but what I get out of that pick six out of that interception and I don't get to watch practice I don't get film from practice I don't even go down to Gillette Stadium to watch the first 10 minutes of practice like the rest of the media the media does but even when they watch the first 10 minutes of practice for the most part they just see them stretching and they don't see anything else. They take their little, they take attendance. They go back to the media room and they tweet out who was there and who wasn't. If you could watch practice, though, and I can't, but if I could, I I can almost guarantee you that you would see a Patriots offense that has major breakdowns with the offensive line during practice. That because during the game yesterday, Brady had great protection, but that pick six was a throw from a guy. That was seeing ghosts. Was a throw from a guy that didn't have to see ghosts because there was nobody near him for most of the day. Which means that he doesn't trust what's going on at practice with his offensive line, which means he doesn't trust them at all. And and it's resulted in bad throws. Tom Brady right now, the issues that you're seeing, I think are mental. I, I think these issues are not physical. I think they're mental. That, that pick six off his back foot. When nobody's near him, nobody's close to getting to him, nobody's blitzing, it's a four-man rush, There, literally has all the time in the world, he's just got to maybe step up into some type of throw, maybe even move to his right just a little bit more, dump it off to Sony Michelle. And he, he didn't do it. He didn't do it. He was scared of getting hit. He was seeing ghosts. He does not trust the guys in front of him. That's a major problem. That's a major problem. Because when you don't trust those guys in front of you, while they're giving you great protection, then there's an issue going on at practice that we're not seeing. And I think it just maybe speaks to Miami wasn't very good at getting to Brady as much as the offensive line was good at protecting for him yesterday. And and Brady wasn't ready for that. Brady thought he was going to get hit all day. Maybe like, you know... He 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 knows his offensive line breaks down during practice. That was an awful throw. I, that might have been the worst throw I've ever seen him make. He's he's had some bad ones. Brady has made some bad throws in his career, and we pointed them out on this show, especially. But that might have been the worst throw he's ever made. I don't think that was injury related. I, I don't think that was personnel related. I, I don't think it was anything other than him not trusting his guys up front. And when the Patriots offense has success. For the most part, they fix some of their offensive issues because they're able to fix the things that are going on up front. And they really, even though it looked like, well, he had a lot of protection yesterday, Brady doesn't trust those guys. If he's not trusting the guys up front, then then you're going to have a tough night Saturday night against Tennessee. You're going to have a tough night in the wild card round. And... This thing might come come crashing and burning down to the ground like everybody in the national media wants to see it crash and burn down to the ground. But that pick six gives the Dolphins a 10-0 lead. You don't throw that pick six. I mean, you win the game. And there's a couple things you could say. If you don't do this, you don't do that, you can win the game. Shoulda, coulda, woulda. Right? If this, if that, if my aunt had balls, she'd be my uncle. I get it. But, but... Not only was it a pick six, it was a pick six from a guy that made a throw that we're not used to seeing him make off the back foot, like just a, just seeing ghosts. I mean, he looked awful. 
That was that was bad. That's a, that's the type of throw that you see like horrible NFL quarterbacks make. And and man, that was ugly. And it's one it's maybe the worst throw I've ever seen Tom Brady make. But the the Dolphins took a ten out lead. Patriots ended up tying it at ten. But that's when you get to the end of the first half, and this is where the coaching kicks in. And I have no idea. You could you can try to tell me. And you have other it, 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 Twitter sucks. You know that? Do you know that like Twitter's so bad, especially some of these guys who cover the Patriots and they think they know more than you about everybody else. I, I don't I don't try to come on this show or any show and, and ever I don't ever try to act like I know more than you about the Patriots. I'm just giving my opinion. I'm just giving my opinion. I hope it doesn't come off like I know more than you because I I, I think that some people make do at time you know, they make some good points. Things that maybe I don't see, and I'm I'm and I'm open to listen to those points. Um, but sometimes people who cover this team and people who cover the NFL, they have opinions, and it's like, that's it. This is what it is, and it didn't factor into the game. The Patriots, the way they handled the end of the first half, like that was a major factor in this game. Don't, like, why? how are people going to try to tell me it, it wasn't? For a couple of reasons. One, you look at the end result of the game, it's a three-point game. You mean to tell me a field goal at the end of the first half or at least some type of, um, I, I don't know, motivation to, to try and kick a field goal at the end of the first half wouldn't have helped the end result of this game, which would have then helped the result of the playoff picture and a first-round bye and the divisional game at home? Like, cut the shit telling me that... That, that that wasn't a factor. It's a huge issue, what we saw at the end of the first half. How could people try to sit there and tell you that, yeah, it was an issue, but it wasn't the, you know, what, it wasn't the biggest issue in the game. It was one of them. It was one of them. And not even just for those reasons I just mentioned. But how about just in general, like things that you, sh- you still need to try and practice as a team that does not have it figured out yet? I don't know, the two-minute drill at the end of a half with timeouts left. Like, if this is an offense and a team that's still working on things, like they're obviously still working on things going into the playoffs, wouldn't you want to take this opportunity? Forget about the scenarios that are out there, whether or not you win this game and first-round buys or whatever. Just this situation, X's and O's, making those improvements going into the playoffs. Don't you want another shot? Don't you want a shot to try to try to make something happen? At the end of the first half, this game's tied at 10. The Dolphins have the ball with 2.01 left. The Patriots have three timeouts and the two-minute warning. Miami, they run a play, and then you get the two-minute warning. So then you get second down. You get three timeouts. Miami even helps the Patriots on the next play by throwing an incomplete pass and stopping the clock. They're helping you out. They're throwing incomplete passes. They're stopping the clock for you. You don't even need to use your timeouts. Game's tied at 10. And then they they force the Dolphins to, to go three and out. And they get the ball back with 57 seconds left. At their own 25-yard line. And they get two run plays. And they let the clock run out. And... 
They don't even, they don't call a timeout. So you get the ball back with just a little less than, with just a little less than a minute. You got, you got three timeouts left and you don't use a timeout. It's a 10-10 game at home in a game that means a whole heck of a lot. How are you not, I, I, I just don't understand it. I really just, I really do not understand it. I don't. Again, you go back to my you go back to Miami and you go back to what what they did in, when they got the ball with 201 left. They ran a play on first down. Um and it was up the middle for no gain. All right? And then you get the 2 minute warning. So, a minute 54 left for Miami at their own 20. Fitzpatrick, incomplete pass. They're helping you out. They're stopping the clock for you. Stopping the clock for you. Then you get third and 10. A run. No gain. Fourth and 10. Like, the, the, they should have called the, the Patriots should have called the timeout right then and there. They should have called the timeout right then and there. And then they like, Miami ran the, the clock down. They punted. You get the ball back. 57 seconds left. All right, at your own 25, you get three timeouts left. I don't understand why you don't want to use a timeout. The, re- the obvious reason they don't use a timeout is because they don't have any confidence in their offense. Or, um, you know, they just want to go talk things over instead of maybe turning it over again. Bullshit! It's week 17. You're the New England Patriots. There's a lot of the line here. You're playing the Dolphins at home. A minute left. You sh- now, you should have called the timeout when Miami had the ball, but you didn't do it. But see, even when you don't do that and you get the ball back with 57 seconds left at your own 25-yard line, you get three timeouts, you would think Tom Brady's your quarterback. You get great protection in this game up front. You would still think you'd, you'd, you'd make an attempt. Make an attempt. Instead, two round plays, up the middle, no timeouts. They head into the half. Tied at 10. It's a joke. It's a joke. Anyone trying to tell you that that wasn't a big deal is, you know, just just think about that next time you want to listen to them or read them and be like, who am I reading right now? Who am I listening to right now? Right? Somebody, somebody that thinks they know more than you. Well, they talk down to you. They think you're an idiot. You're not. If you're upset with the way the Patriots handled the end of the first half, you should be. Because the way they handled the end of the first half from a coaching perspective is an absolute embarrassment. And they should be ashamed of that. In other cities, in other organizations, because of the way they handled that, there would be fans calling for the coach's head, calling for him to be fired, calling for changes to be made in the coaching staff. All right? And we, I could sit there and name 15 teams that that would be going on today. If, if you had a team in a 10-10 game in their own building handle the end of a half like that with so much on the line. We're obviously not going to do it here in New England because it's Bill Belichick, the Patriots, the dynasty, the history. I get it. I'm not calling for Belichick's head. I'm not calling for him to be fired. I'm never going to do that. I don't care what happens. But... What happened at the end of the first half yesterday is embarrassing. That is garbage. That cannot happen. I don't care if I don't care if you hate everybody in your offense. You still make an attempt. You still make an attempt. <laughs> Tom Brady's your quarterback. Let's go. 
57 seconds, three timeouts at your own 25, work it down to kick a field goal and take a 13-10 lead at the half, which obviously would have factored into the end result because you lost by three. Heck, maybe if you used the timeouts in Miami still at the football, you could have marched down and scored a touchdown. Like, it is just shocking the way this thing played out yesterday. I'm, I'm shocked by it. From Brady's pick six to the to the way they coached up the end of the first half and just said, ah, we don't trust our offense. We're not going to use our three timeouts. We're going to take it into halftime. It's stupid. That is garbage. And it affected you. And it affected the end result. And it was one of the reasons you lost this game yesterday. Don't tell me it wasn't. If somebody's trying to tell you it wasn't a big deal, you know, you should reconsider taking that person seriously. I don't care who they are in the media and, and, and how well-respected they are. If somebody in the media covering the Patriots is trying to tell you what happened at the end of the first half is not a big deal, then, you know, that's your fault for listening to these morons. I will call them morons. You got three timeouts left at home. Tom Brady's your quarterback. You're playing the Miami Dolphins. There's a first-round bye on the line, and you're just going to take it into the half? That's embarrassing. In any other city, there'd be people using that as an example and a major example as to why they should fire the coach. We're not going to do that here. I get it. But to just kind of shrug your shoulders and say, hey, they had other chances to win this game. Okay, fine. Fine. But this was a moment that is inexcusable, really, the way they coached up the end of the first half. It's inexcusable. I don't, and, and I don't care what the – obviously the reasoning is they don't trust the offense. That's obviously the reason. I don't care what they say. It's because the coaching staff didn't trust the offense could get anything done. Well, <laughs> at least try. At least try. Can it hurt to try? Could it hurt to try? I mean, you lost the fucking game anyways. You could say, well, that's hindsight, Danny. Guess what? That's what we're doing today. Hindsight. Hindsight. You know what I see in hindsight? Is that the Patriots are the three seed. They got to play Saturday night against the Tennessee Titans team that is hungry. Hungry.